Rufit, here we are at Kino Kingdom 23. It's it's not as much of a milestone as 20, but it is a festive one. Um, mm. Festive one, Kino Kingdom 23. Because I, weirdly, the last time we talked, uh, you you watched a few Christmas films, and I I wasn't feeling Christmassy at all, um, for various reasons. And what I realised was when you said oh, there's no good Christmas films. And then when I said, yeah, I don't count, you know, diehards, it's film set at Christmas, they're not about intrinsically about the values of of Christmas. And that was like a weird breakthrough for me when you said there are no good Christmas films, because in watching the films I've watched over the last week and approaching them, not for like, oh, is this going to be a good film? Like accepting they're going to be really sentimental and have like loads <laughs> of shows in them. It's made me just like open my heart to them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's the thing you need you kind of have to have this kind of self disclaimer before you can actually enjoy it i have actually watched a couple more christmas films this week although i'm not going to talk about them i'll talk about them in the next one but i and there there is one great christmas film which is the grinch who stole christmas with jim carrey i did watch um i half watched the Benedict Cumberbatch version, the, the sort of animated version. Um, but no, I've, I've watched a Very few. Different. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, yes, I will talk about that at a later date. But I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's a genuine Christmas film, uh, but also genuinely good. So I stand corrected. Um, oh, fair enough. Um, I also, before I go into what we watched and, and the, managed to bag another sponsorship, which has always been good, managed to bag a, a sponsorship that actually has managed to pay for uh, a machine I've been building since we started the podcast in October. I've been, you know, ferreting away some of the cash from the sponsorships we get. And I've managed to create a machine that uh, when you turn it on, it uh, just sort of says, after it's sort of powered up a bit, it tells you a sort of random fictional film title. All right. So yeah. if you you're a budding screenwriter and that, that last piece of the puzzle is just eluding you um yeah, oh, then you could you could you know log into this and out pops what, the perfect title or even if you're just if you won for you know doing a, a thought shower um and you've got uh, but you haven't got any friends or colleagues you can use this as you can sit in your room and think oh i just need i just need a title you know to like a, you know cut the cut the rope and get me started come to us and uh, we can we can help you get started um really quickly <clears throat> before we go into all that uh, i did just to say i watched nobody sleeps in the woods tonight that polish horror you covered a oh, few yeah. weeks ago and yeah it was it was exactly what you said it was it was fine um it was nice i don't think i've ever watched a polish film so that was that was quite nice to watch and the the, the makeup was great and it was like Hang you on, know and you've never watched you you never watched closely observed trains <laughs> that sounds like a tarkovsky film or something it's literally about like a, uh, a guard at uh, a train station as well i nearly i nearly bought a vinyl record the other day in uh that was in obviously a while ago before lockdown um in the you know the pumping station in cardiff bay and um i went in there and there was a 
it was like a box of LPs. But w- when I go to places like markets and car boot sales and stuff, if the box of vinyl is too vast or there are too many of them, I instantly kind of lose interest. But mm. this one was like a little shoe, like a you know, just a bit bigger than a shoebox. And the one on the front was just it was just a man with his arms crossed standing near a train track, and it was like forty five minutes front and back with really detailed liner notes about rec- the recording of various trains breaking oh around Britain. I almost breaking. bought it. Breaking Not- the sounds of them approaching a station and breaking. Wow. Um, and I thought... How much difference can there be in the, those sounds? But obviously there are. You know that Fred Dibner would know that difference. <laughs> and you also know that, like, the thing, not just like you know, the choo-choo-choo-choo, all the sort of nice sounds you associate. A train breaking <laughs> is one of the worst sounds in the world. <laughs> it's so, really shrill, isn't it? I, I thought, oh, it's, could it's I listen to that? It's actively annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just think, like, all these trains cost millions of pounds, lay in the track. You know, it gives thousands of people around the country jobs. Spray some WD-40 on the wheels. You get it for, like, a pound a can in hyper value. I don't know what the problem is. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, so the films I've got, no, so Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight, perfectly fine. Left herself open for a sequel, not entirely sure it needs one. <laughs> just going just gonna to come hurtling out and say that. So for me, it is... The Dak um, from 2018, Stage Mother, War 2007, the sequel from 2008 has never been so much fun. Um, the next three days, The Christmas Chronicles 2, Mickey's Christmas Carol, Jingle Jangle A Christmas Journey, Our Kind of Traitor, and Haunter. Right. Okay. There's a few Christmas gems in there, then, aren't there? Well, I or tried to squeeze a few out. Christmas films, really. Um, <laughs> I well, my my selection is quite special today because they are it's eleven films, <laughs> nine mainline films, and two spin-offs. I will be talking about the Skywalker saga. Every I've watched every Star Wars movie to date, except Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor. Just eleven. I thought there was more than eleven films. I, I will say that um, this is going to be me sitting down, slowly eating a packet of crisps for an hour because I've never <laughs> seen a Star Wars film. <laughs> so, like everything you say, is just I've got no like bearing at well, all. I have no particular attachment to this franchise. So, I am. I've you know when I made my notes about like this story and that I'm. I, I have to say up front, I'm not sure whether I've captured every every detail of the various trade negotiations underpinning these movies, but uh, I think I've got the basic idea. And it was interesting to watch them watch these films back to back that I've seen over the years, and you know, see their the flaws and their qualities. Yeah. You say that you've got no particular attachment to these films, and, and yet yeah, I watched them all back to back. Yeah, and also I was just going to say, you know, give a merry Christmas to your two sons, Endor and Millennium Falcon. So I'm quite surprised you said that, to be honest. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> my wife's name's Han Solo. Uh, my wife's name is Harrison Ford. So it's uh, <laughs> that's, that's that's how we met. That's how we connected. <laughs> you want to meet someone, and you you've got your wife jokingly to change her name to Han Solo, and then the guy you talk to says that's unbelievable because I made my wife change her name to Harrison Ford, <laughs> uh, and weirdly I lost interest in it around about 2001 to 2015. So it echoes his career as well uh, our love echoes his career um 
So yeah, uh, I have managed to nail down some sponsorship for this week. Um, like I said, which hasn't helped me finish my <clears throat> help me finish my um, film title generator machine. Um, so this week we are sponsored by the Fallout Shelter Food Delivery Service. We all know that government is pumping nanobots into the water supply in a bid to turn us all into slaves and reconfigure our minds into believing that Brush Strokes was a good TV series and that series 7 and 8 of Red Dwarf was more fun than being struck by lightning in front of your children on your birthday. Do you ever stop to think about any other lies you've been fed? Do you own a nuclear fallout shelter or underground bunker in which you intend to live with your family for years until this torrent of lies has passed and only the worthy remain on earth? Well, here at the Fallout Shelter Food Delivery Service, we're here to blow your minds and drop the biggest bomb that hopefully you'll have to deal with in the near future. Brace yourself, because contrary to the nonsense you've been force-fed, food does not go off. Unbelievable as it may seem, the notion that food goes bad or becomes inedible is actually yet another government conspiracy in order to sell off lower quality tinned and packet foods. Get rid of all those tinned tomatoes, peaches and powdered milk sachets. They are full of tiny particles created by the government that rewrite the code of your brain and ingrain a desire to pick up VHS box sets of Joe McGann in the upper hand and reassess the cultural values of awful 80s dramedy bread. Here at the Fallout Food Delivery Service, we sell food and drink in bulk that has been thoroughly and safely cleaned with bleach to remove any errant government nanobots and can be safely consumed at any time, remaining fresh for up to hundreds of years. Before you hunker in that bunker, call us and make sure that you get all the supplies you need from our menu, which consists of milk, eggs, sushi, fruit, vegetables, cheese, duck pate, steaks, mints, advoca, chicken, eggnog for those festive underground Christmas parties, and brown sauce. Make your order now at www.falloutfood.com. Uh, I will say that whilst we do get these advertisements from people, we don't really comment on them in terms of you know the, the, the validity of... Yeah. yeah, we don't want to get dragged into the, the politics. Well, but thankfully this time... I mean, there's nothing really to comment on. I mean, it just sounded like a public service announcement to me. Absolutely nothing controversial about any of the content there. That's and, you know, it. I mean, if if it's been thoroughly, safely cleaned by household bleach, then you've really nothing to worry about because, you know, if you did have any qualms, boom, sorted. I can't imagine Advocar going off ever. Especially no. if it's like a really warm, closed space. I definitely, actually, on the subject of Advocar, I didn't, about five years ago, find a bottle in uh, my old flat in the cupboard and say to Faye, how long has this been open? And she said, oh, about a week. It's not the one from last year. I didn't drink that bottle and then have really violent food poisoning for a week. So that's proof that that it's fine. And even if it was a year old, little tinkle of bleach in there, a bit of a swish off your trot. Should have gone out to fall out shelter dot what is it called uh www.falloutfood.com i yeah. think the for the, it's it's for the fallout food delivery service but i think mm. fallout food is like their punchier title now yeah. rupert before we go not into the endorsed film, by bethesda at all or what was it black isle yeah black they did studios. black isle studios yeah now this is something i was trying to keep a secret from you because as you know i've been trying to create this this machine for a while and if I haven't actually used it yet, so I don't know what it's going to throw out at us, but this is a live, uh, well, live to us anyway. I'm now going to use for the first time, before we go into the film reviews, my 
random film title generator. No, it would be. Okay, then. Marry me, Grandad. Marry me, Grandad. That's quite quite a depressing title. Mm, uh, Yeah, what could that mean? It just occurred to me, though, like, it could be used, say, if you were, if you're a writer with, like, writer's block, Mm -hmm. and you thought to yourself, I I just need some sort of inspiration. Slam it in the random movie title generator. Mm. It comes out with something, and you write the movie off the back of whatever comes out of it. In so fact, I, think running... that's, I think that's pretty much how a lot of Hollywood movies are, are written, to be honest. <laughs> it's it's the modern equivalent, isn't it, uh, of throwing a dart at a wall with paper on it. What if so? Marry me, Grandad. Um, how do you envisage that film um... taking place? It to me, it sounds like it would be like a marry me, Grandad. It would be like um. Like a a jaunty, really, really misjudged comedy about like a like a fourteen year old boy falling in love with his grandfather, and it would be filmed in a real light hearted way. It was kind of to try and normalise how dark the story actually is. Yeah, yeah, and to, it would to, to it kind of trivialise it almost. I yeah. I can envisage something, a kind of farce of some sort where a guy, for or a woman for some convoluted reason ends up having to marry her own granddad in order to fool the rest of her family or something like that you know it would like, be one of these Christmas parts. or something yeah and uh, oh it'd be hilarious but then they actually end up falling in love <laughs> oh, oh, oh it would it would be the first film in the series would be called marry me granddad and the second film will be a holiday one set at christmas and it would be called marry me granddad this it's an idea with legs. So <clears throat> not, not very strong legs. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> the opposite of legs people... with rickets. <laughs> um, so how, you've got 11, did you say? Yes. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I've got 10. So do you want to launch into one? Okay. So shall we launch? So what I'm going to do is I'll do these in, in chronological order in terms of the story. The story, the Skywalker saga. So, this is actually going to be a huge learn for me because I yes. know the titles of them, but I've no idea what they refer to. Okay, so Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Uh, this one is about the rise of Obi Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker, um, who both rise in certain ways go their separate ways but anyway so it starts off with this trade dispute which causes a war um a guy called Kijon, who's played by liam neeson he is master to his uh, padawan or apprentice obi-wan who's played by ewan mcgregor they go on a mission and they get help from anakin skywalker on the way who's very young at this point anakin will become obi-wan's apprentice eventually and eventually anakin will become darth vader um by the way little aside here darth is what they call agents of the sith so basically you have jedis who use the the force the magic force uh, on the light side and then you have the sith who use it for evil on the dark side so that's what the darth bit refers to um they also hook up with uh padme 
Amidala, who's played by Natalie Portman. She's a queen who comes on for the ride. She meets Anakin and she will end up marrying him. Uh, uh, in the end, a big war breaks out and that's where we get a big showdown with the very fearsome Darth Maul, who's the the red dude. You might have seen him with the kind of scoops on his face. Ray, Ray Parks? Yes. Yes. So there's a really, really impressive pod race in the middle of this film. You may know the pod pod racer on the N64, which I think has been remastered recently, actually. It's um, on PS1 as well, yeah. God, they must have had some pop in. Um, yeah, so it's a really cool sequence uh, with a pod race, and that's that's pretty awesome. Actually, the action scenes are generally very good, um, and the fight with Darth Maul at the end is really well choreographed and nicely edited. This was made in, what was it, 99, I think? So CGI, it is distinctly plasticky and shiny, um, mostly because it's it's largely shot in broad daylight as well. So they really like put the CGI front and center. They've got, yeah, a, load of really, they've got a load of really shiny ships in broad daylight. So they, yeah, there's no hiding it. Um, where, where there is practical makeup is actually really good. Um, obviously, but I mean, there's a lot of cityscapes and stuff. They they don't really look real, but they are designed with some imagination and scope, and and they all look very unique. The different locations and stuff, and it is notable that the palette is really very different, much brighter, much more colourful than the very grim greys of the modern films. Um, so. Yeah, it, it is a film with some issues, I won't lie. It's, it was somewhat disappointing at the time. Um, I, George Lucas, who wrote and directed it, he he's never got the best out of actors. He's never been a skill of his. And But Natalie Portman in this film is astonishingly bad. Like oh, really, like, yeah, which is weird because she's actually by the by the time you get to the final film of this trilogy, she's actually really good. I, I don't know what it is about. It's like she just grew up in those years, or she finally grasped what the words that she was saying. I don't know what it is, but she's so bad. But thankfully, Ewan McGregor is really good, and Ewan McGregor is the heart of these films, really, because. I mean, it's called the Skywalker Saga, but this trilogy is really about Ewan McGregor as much as anyone. Obi Wan, Obi Wan Kenobi, and it's such a, it's such a perfectly poised performance from him. It's he's got this really lovely kind of wholesome heroism combined with this cheeky humour, but they don't feel the need to make him like a rascal or a rogue. He's just like quite a wholesome guy trying to do the right thing all the time, and he's got okay. fantastic hair. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is the one you may be aware of Jar Jar Binks this is where yes, Jar Jar yes, Binks yes. is introduced who is, he is tiresome I won't lie, he is this weird it's sort of like a almost, he's sort of speaking like a, a kind of like a, is, English like, isn't it like a marry me granddad kind of thing <laughs> yes exactly, I think it's a line from the film actually a, a working <laughs> title if you like um yeah uh and yeah he's got a bit i don't know it's, i don't know what he's meant to be i don't know he's played by it, it he is quite irritating he has been the target of a lot of um fans 
anger. Even but I'm I, aware of him I is, think is he I, throughout the whole film then? He is in this film a lot. Um, uh, but I can kind of understand what I understand is the need for there to be comic relief <clears> because otherwise this, I mean, it is a film which starts off with trade agreements. An, a trade agreement and some negotiations with the trade agreement. So if it weren't for him, it could be extremely heavy and dull. That's fine in theory. The problem is he's not funny. Um, but thankfully he's basically written out of the second two films. So uh, I'm not really sure why he exists, to be honest. But yeah, he is fairly annoying. But overall, uh, it's it's quite an une- uneven film. It's got some really good set pieces, um, but it's also it's not exactly starting off the saga with much of a bang, I have to say. Mm. But yeah, I think um, it, it the the action sequences are, are, are well choreographed, well edited very clear some of the performances are decent some of them are shockingly bad uh, but uh, overall it's it's okay i would say so it's not a bad start it, it seems weird for a and i hope you, i'm i'm literally going to be interjecting at certain points just just for my own sort of benefit really just yes. to have a full understanding it seems really weird to start off a, a, a series that has been dormant for over 20 years with mm. something that's quite heavy and bookish if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, it is. It is a weird one because, you know, it has like obviously in classic style, it starts off with the kind of text crawl going up the screen mm. with the music, John Williams music and that. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then but then the text says, oh, trade agreements have broken down between. <laughs> it's like, OK, it's not exactly what I expected. But um, that has risen to 35 <laughs> percent on Endor. Exactly. Oh, OK, OK. Instantly jumps into an accountant's office. Um <laughs> Yeah. yeah, um, and Ewoks arguing in a fictional language with subtitles about like so like if you're selling if you if you're buying the food in bulk in cold but then you heat it up before you cook it before you sell it does that then affect the VAT return on it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, one for the kids then. <laughs> <laughs> daddy, daddy, what's bulk purchase? <laughs> well, sit sit down, son, and let me pop on Clone Wars to explain. Um, <laughs> so it's okay it's okay i would say it's not the worst of the opening trilogy mm, okay oh okay then we've got something to look forward to <laughs> <laughs> um well i watched a film called the dark um i think this was really weird because i watched this on amazon prime <clears throat> I'm, I'm not gonna laugh i'm not gonna laugh i watched this on amazon prime which is a, a valid a valid resource for this podcast <laughs> and and um, I, weirdly, when I, I said to Phil, let's watch this, the, you know, the DAC, and um, it said 2018. But then when I scrolled down to who was in it, um, it was like William Devane. And I was like, what? Yeah. And all these actors were all of the all the pictures are in black and white. And I thought, what? Um, but then I realized, I don't know if there's another film called The Dark from like the 70s or early 80s. I right. think I tried to watch it and it was the one I watched for a few minutes when I was a bit drunk and it had really bad sound quality. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know if they've mixed up the the film the, with the actors oh, or maybe, whatever. Yeah. On. So I've never seen that so before. So this has anyway, William Devane in it. Sadly not. I genuinely <laughs> kept my eye out for him. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, I don't so think this my is eye has ever fully closed for William Devane. To be <laughs> I just remember him and the, the double double power punch of him and Chris Christopherson in Payback from 1999 with Mel Gibson, which is a film I really, really love because it's based on the... Um, 
Donald Westlake novels, the the, the you know the uh, uh, he's played a character called Porter in it, and the the remake, not the remake, but another version of one of his books uh, that was released with Jason Statham called Parker. Mm. Uh, oh my God, that film had padding. It had padding, and Jennifer Lopez didn't need to be in it as a love interest. Yeah, um, I couldn't pin that film down at all. Oh, it was so like, really, really, really quickly in th- like thirty seconds. The thing about Donald Westlake or Richard Stark as a pseudonym with the darker the sort of Parker novels. The thing about them is they are so they're so functional in that they are. It's like uh, the character gets himself in a situation after robbery and has to get out of it, and it is literally like boom, boom, boom. It's almost like Bukowski-esque directness in the writing. And every time I've seen a film, they like whisper that Jason Statham when Parker. It's, it's like what's this love interest doing in here? What? Why? Why is all this happening? Why are these? What are these jokes? Like this is supposed to be a real hardball thriller. Anyway. Um, the the Dak is stars Nadia Alexander, who I recognised her face, but I couldn't pin it down. And Karl Markovich, um, who plays a character called Joseph Hoffer, and I again I recognise his face, but I can't pin him down from anything in his filmography. So that was irritating for me. Um, and the film it's a really it's a film that really unwraps in a really satisfying way. It's got really middling reviews, and I was quite surprised at that because it is quite a unique take on horror. Um, the story begins with Karl Markovich's character looking nervous. I'm not going to lie to you, Rupert, uh, pulling up to kind of a gas station and going in and just getting like a load of weird things like cereal and sweets and stuff. And he goes to the counter, looking nervous, and asks for a nearby place called Devil's Den. And the attendant there is an older guy who kind of speaks in <laughs> speaks in uh, tongues. Uh, speaks in tongues. Yeah, no, it speaks in. He's very. It's very good, sort of cagey about his language. And so, no, I know. Mm. I know what you. I know what you guys want when you go there. There's only one thing that happens to men that go there. And I was like, oh, okay, then. So his trousers are going to be it's removed. Fake, that is. <laughs> yeah. When you go there, something will happen. He's like, yeah, probably pull up and park the car. To be honest. Um. So yeah, uh, and then we see in a in a on a te- television set in the store behind the attendant that Karl Markovich's character is um on the run uh, is and the police are really hunting him down and he shoots him gets in the car and drives off and when he arrives at this uh, devil's den there's a huge abandoned house that he sort of um looks to sort of it's ruined this house like really really mm. battered and everything's peeling off the walls and it's just dusty and full of like old clothes and stuff and he seems to want to kind of like hunker down there for a while i'm not going to say too much more about the plot because it's really interesting how how it sort of the directions it goes in effectively from there it it is a good horror film but it is a quiet horror film mm-hmm. and it does get a lot of its mystery in through the script in people not speaking and being as open as they probably would in real life it's not irritating weirdly if you know what I mean, you know, when people, you just mm. think if you just, if you just sat down and, and just talked for two minutes openly, you could sort this out, but yeah. it's not that irritating because the characters in it are so unique and like very fractured. Okay. So it kind of makes more sense that they're very guarded about their so personal it's life. It's not just forced. No, I, I think mo- in moments it can be, but I'm, I'm very quick to anger at those things. And mm. I didn't, I was intrigued enough to see the film sort of through to its end. And I, and I did, I think I was in the perfect mood for this film because it was a really nice, quiet unrolling horror mm. with kind of flashes, flashes of gore and violence with some pretty neat um, practical effects and, and, and a satisfying ending. It didn't yeah. like lose its way. So um, yeah, it's, I, I enjoyed this. I 
probably would watch again if I was over some house and they said, I'm going to check this on. But I think a lot of the fun comes from watching it unfold and seeing the directions it goes in. Yeah. And this is the dark made in 2018, not the William Devane version. Not the late 70s one where William Devane is a werewolf or something, yes. Um, yeah, I was literally looking at the film and every 10 minutes when there was like the characters were like quiet, like looking yeah. off into the forest. I was going, William, William. And Billy. Faye pointed out, well, Mr. Devane. And, and Faye pointed out that not only was he not in the film, but he even if he was, he wouldn't be able to hear me. And I, I was, if anything, she said, I was just being irritating and ruining it for him. Isn't he dead? He was probably dead by then, wasn't he? No, no, no. Is he still alive? He is about 85, 89. He's still got that amazing, like, like it's just teak-coloured skin where he just clearly lives now in, like, L.A. and just oh, drinks yeah. champagne and sundays all day. Shit, good. Yeah. What a man. What a man. And um, he's such a strange, well, he's a unique-looking man, isn't he? He's got that kind of huge froggy face. It's... And he's got, like, a wonderful drawl when he talks, yeah. a really quiet drawl. So, yeah, that's The Dark 2018, and I liked it. Excellent. Okay. Um, and that's on Prime, obviously. Um, Star Wars, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Okay. This was made in 2002. Um, and the story jumps to, I think it's 10 years later. Anyway, Obi-Wan, Anakin, is, Anakin Skywalker is now a grown man, uh, played by Hayden Christensen. More on him later. So Obi-Wan and is now the kind of uh, master to Anakin's apprentice. And they are tasked with protecting Padme, the queen, the Natalie Portman character. She's she's actually now a senator and she's being targeted by an assassin. So uh, Anakin smuggles her out. Really, really quickly, do apologize. So Natalie Portman, I'm assuming the characters then, Mm. is it like it's 10 years, but they haven't really aged then? Because obviously they were at quite key ages then where they would like... Ten years would be a massive leap in well, physicality. Natalie Portman looks identical, obviously, but um, whereas um, Anakin was literally a tiny child, and now he's like—I guess he's meant to be like a late teenager or maybe twenty. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, so they—he is getting his training. He's not a full Jedi yet, and he—he uh, he smuggles out the city. And it's basically a ruse by Senator Palpatine to get her out of the way um, uh, because Palpatine is uh, a bit of an evil bastard. Anyway, um, so anyway, when they're when they're off planet, Anakin clearly fancies Padme, but she's very resistant to his so-called charms, which isn't surprising because he is just a, a jealous, entitled knob. And he's clearly a, a blossoming authoritarian. Um, the kind of stuff you, he says. Are, about, you, are you reading from the script notes now? Or are they just your thoughts? <laughs> he's literally one of the things he says. They're like lying in a field of like like a meadow with all these beautiful flowers around. And he just, just starts going on about how our democracy's flawed. And actually, we might want to get a dictator in charge. So, and she's like, oh, you, oh, I love you. You're so charming. <laughs> she was just just unwrapping the condom, and then she just puts it back in her purse when he says that. <laughs> um, anyway, he dreams that his mother is in peril, and they go over to there, and his mum dies uh, at the hands of some uh, bad people. He loses it completely, but still, he and Padme fall in love. So she's still hanging on to him, uh, regardless. Uh, and meanwhile, Obi-Wan, he is tracking down a bounty hunter um, and he comes across a clone army. 
believe it or not. Um, and they are ready to rise up and take out the good guys. Uh, there's a big running battle, and I think this is where the first proper space shootout is in actually this trilogy. So, um, and then when he when Obi Wan gets into trouble, Padme and Anakin travel to save him. So they're all over the place. Anyway, back in the Senate, um, this Palpatine he is basically trying to create a super army to defend the Galactic Republic from Count Dooku, played by Christopher Lee, and. Basically, Palpatine is is angling to give himself ultimate power. So he's kind of signing these executive orders. You know, like how Trump will sign executive orders and just give himself powers. So <laughs> this kind of what he's doing and how convenient it is that Padme is still not there. Um, so, yeah. So we, we, we're seeing the rise of Palpatine. Um, Who become plays Palpatine, sorry? Ian something. Let me check. McShane. <laughs> if only. I want to say Ian something, but I bet it's not. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, Ian Mc... McDermid? McDermid? He's really good, actually. He's he's a, like a really, like, just a really cruel British actor. Um, I suppose he's not cruel in real life. He's probably quite nice. Um, so, anyway... This this is a film where we quickly realise Hayden Christensen's Christensen's limitations as an actor, because this is a character he is meant to be torn apart inside by this enormous rage. Because on one hand he is a Jedi, you know, trained to be a Jedi. It's all about light. It's all about balance, discipline. On the other hand, his mum's been killed and he's raging, Um, but he just doesn't have the gravitas to pull it off. And so that has a knock on effect with everything else. Cause of course, Natalie Portman is meant to be this like good wise queen. And she's meant to, she's meant to fall in love with him despite the fact that he's basically bonkers. But the thing is he can't really, he just looks like a petulant, angry child. And so it, it's hard to really believe why she would be keen on him. Um, is there, so, so with with the Jedi's then, it, it, I've always just assumed they were kind of like sort of um, mystical soldiers. But from what you're saying, they're more like kind of warrior monks, where it's all about yeah, yeah, right, they are okay. more like warrior monks. So ideally, they shouldn't be fighting anyone, but because they, can. they shouldn't need to, but, <laughs> um, but they can. Yeah, and well, this is this is kind of what we'll get to when uh, with the next one, where uh, where it becomes clear what what the difference is between those two extremes. But anyway, this one is, I mean, you get some pretty cool stuff at the end. You get to see the computer graphically created Yoda get to have a fight with an 80-year-old Christopher Lee. So that's an interesting sight to behold. Um, <laughs> um, and the action scenes still have some imagination, but they just seem a bit shoddier and more weightless this time. Uh, I don't They seem almost like they're not telling a story through the action so much uh, they just it just feels like padding a lot of the time it, it's mm. definitely weaker than the phantom menace and actually it's the worst of the lucas films i would say and it although it is kind of necessary because it's meant to set up this love story between Padme and anakin but of course the problem is is that it's not a convincing love story because of mostly because of hayden christensen just not being not having the gravitas to pull it off not not convincing us is this um, the Sam Worthington effect? Yeah, basically. He's probably got a little bit more range than Sam Worthington, perhaps. But, 
Yeah, it's not really there. It's it's a pretty weak movie. It really feels like a like a, a middle section. Like um, there really isn't anything cool about it other than you get to see Django Fett. He's a bounty hunter. Um, In relation to Boba, Bo, Boba Fett, I think I think he's a father because he has a kid hanging around, and yeah, and... called Boba. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah uh or just bob in this um yeah so he yes so that's quite cool you know they get to have a fight that's all right but most of it is really about these anakin and padme rolling around in fields and him being really immature and petulant it's really it's you saying it feels like a middle section is, is is almost worse than saying if like if you say you know or if it feels like the start of a trilogy that may or may not happen we know this one did but you know someone's like for yeah. example when i said about bright you're like it feels like the start of a trilogy mm. and you're like so you know be that as it may kind of thing when you say something feels like a like a middle section it's like it's flat isn't it it just yeah it just sounds like it's like nothing's really happening they just there's going to be a bit of a build to something that you're not yet going to see yes Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that Christopher Lee gets to rock up in there. And it's int- what's cool when you think about it is that Christopher Lee, you know, this guy was he was at least in his 70s then, probably uh, pushing towards 80, I think, I, because he was. Yeah, he was about 90 odd when he did The Hobbit. But he this is an actor who was obviously famous in like 60s and that mm. played Dracula and obviously he's famous for the Hammer films, obviously in Wicker Man. Great actor. And then I love the fact that he just his in his very old age, his career was completely resurrected um, in some of the biggest films of all time. So you had like he he turns up here and he was also in uh, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, and then finally in The Hobbit as well. So he get he got to really a hell of a swan song. Yeah, he get to. Yeah, he get to go to really say goodbye in the best possible way. He is um, he's one of those people that you when you see you just think good good yeah i know um, he, he, you're always going to pretty much get the same performance <laughs> from him but he's that's a man with gravitas i'm just going to say before we move on to my next film um i just want to say some terms some terms that following on from what you said about the first one with its sort of heavy involvement in trade agreements i was waiting for these terms to pop out and they didn't uh, and in that review then rupert you didn't say uh, cash-based accounting accrued revenue Current year earnings, deferred revenue, or general ledger. Who I or even insider actually. trading. Yeah, so a bit disappointing then that uh, yeah, I thought it would go deeper into that. Get the accountants really revving their engines. <laughs> um, I watched Stage Mother, which is from 2020, and is uh, a film about uh, a sort of set of parents who live in the deep south. Very sort of um, hardcore christian traditionals who have an estranged son who moved away from um texas to la 20 years ago and has recently died and they have inherited a gay bar uh well it's, they say they describe it as a gay bar it's effectively a drag bar um right and he was very flamboyantly gay uh lived with he lived with adrian grenier who i know again i know the name of and recognize him <laughs> but i can't place him in anything i've seen um and when when this is this is not a film I, I chose as you may have guessed, but I found it quite endearing because, it, it, considering its, uh, its content, it, it's never it's rated R, but it's never just gets kind of cheap 
with its language. Right. You know, I mean, if you imagine like a film where you've got like a, a you know, effectively like a Christian fundamentalist uh, in her seventies, played by Jackie Weaver, going over to a fish out of water kind of thing to take over, you know, her her sort of estranged son's drag bar. You can imagine it'd be like a real clash of cultures. But actually, yes. she kind of gets involved and kind of gets on with everyone pretty quickly, and it's actually quite a heartwarming story. You get a lot of um, you get a lot of references, sort of sort of penis uh, references and you know drag references, but it's kind of done in a tongue in cheek way. It's never it's never just like cheap gags all the time. And although mm. Lucy Liu is in this film and she's fifty two, that woman does not look fifty two years old. Um, uh, most fifty two year old women in Wales look like my elbow when I straighten my arm, but no, not her, not her, never her. Um, so Anthony Scordy's in this as well, who did, I believe, he did the voice of the, what's his name, the Traveller or something. Remember the Hand of Fate games? The card oh, yeah. Yeah, awesome. yeah. yeah, Anthony Scordy does the voice of the dealer in that. So he's got this fantastic voice. And I'm a sucker for a dude with a good voice. So yeah, um, the film goes on. She basically turns up and with the kind of Southern Charms and Outsiders view... All of the all of the people in this failing drag bar, she sort of helps them in their personal lives, helps them rediscover themselves, and it all leads to a really really awkward uh, final song and crescendo. Um, it's you can see exactly what's going to happen from the moment the sort of the credits come up. But yeah. as sort of functional as it is, uh, I did laugh a few times, and I obviously Lucy was extremely attractive, and I. And I, I spent the first 30 minutes looking at Jackie Weaver thinking, bloody hell, Beverly Dangelo looks really weird. <laughs> really weird. And then I realised it was just someone else. Um, <laughs> she's an Australian actress, apparently, and she puts on a really convincing Texan accent. I yeah, like... Jackie Weaver's good, yeah. I remember in Animal Kingdom, she was, she was awesome. That was Australian. I, I, I did like the, the sort of segment of the film I really enjoyed was when uh, Jackie Weaver goes over and she kind of gets involved in everyone's lives and it, and it kind of it reinvigorate, reinvigorates her a lot, you know, because she's stuck in this, like, her husband's... <laughs> Let's face facts. If, if, if it cut to him going to a polling booth, we know who we'd be voting for. Um, so it, it's like she kind of re, reinvigorates her life when she goes over to LA and meets all these people. I, it's, I don't think it's LA, actually. I'm thinking, I think it's San Francisco, sorry. Um and, you know, she's so full of joy and she's so charming and all these sort of different characters. She really brings them together and makes them kind of fall in love with themselves again. And I thought oh, this is quite a nice heartwarming tale, actually, um, interspersed with some really uh, auto-tuned songs. And I thought, <laughs> don't go back to your husband. Don't I don't want that to happen. And I, I like the fact when her husband comes in that his kind of like stoicness and how closed off he is and how dismissive he is of of anyone outside of his kind of social sphere of like, you know, watching baseball and drinking and wearing caps and we're constantly wearing a body warmer over a check shirt. And I liked how it, how it ended by her just saying, no, actually, no, you, you're, you're an awful man. And my life was just really depressing and I'm going to knock it on the head. <laughs> so I, I know I spoiled the ending, but you know, the end is going to be, but uh, no, I liked it. I thought it was a nice little, uh, nice little hot woman film. Is it, is it an out and out comedy or is it more of a, comedy drama it's kind of a comedy drama but it's quite light-hearted you know it's yeah. the kind of thing where someone says that you know her son died of a, a drug overdose and yeah. she can see everyone in the bargain at the drugs and you know quick conversation and they knock it on the head it's never yeah. it's not too it's not too full-on it's not I too did, heavy right 
I was watching this film and thinking, I assumed actually when I sat down that I thought, oh, this is obviously the first episode of a show that's quite, it's going to be like a punchy first episode and then it's going to drag on for like three series and just get cancelled halfway through. But mm. then I found out, Faye was like, no, this is a film and it's all the better for it because of course it completely condenses everything down. Good. Um, so yeah. yeah, no, I, I really liked it. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. Yes. Oh, that sounds interesting. What's it called again? Stage Mother. Stage Mother. Doesn't star Beverly D'Angelo. No. But I do like Jackie Weaver, so... I do now, yeah. I just didn't know who she was. I I, I know the name, but I didn't realize who she was. I imagine she's married to Dennis Weaver. I think it's Sigourney Weaver she's married to, actually. But, um... (laughs) Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. So, this one is so you you've had the kind of all right opening part you've had the pretty drab middle section but revenge of the sith is actually pretty good and it was well received at the time actually uh, that it was sort of like oh you know lucas has finally got it right sort of thing wasn't it in like this... hang on wasn't the first you know the, the first trilogy in the 70s the same where it's like first one good second one people were like meh and the third one was awesome no, I think there was more like the first one was really good. I think the first and second one particularly were really were really well thought of, and then the third one it's like, yeah, oh, it's okay. got Ewoks. Um, yeah, uh, well, we'll get to that. Um, so in this one, Palpatine, the uh, the kind of evil senator guy, he is kidnapped by uh, Count Dooku, Christopher Lee, and this General Grievous, who's a CGI creation. And I quite liked him, actually, this CGI creation, because he's like a robot, but he, he moves like LeChuck from the Monkey Island games. So that's pretty cool, <laughs> like shambling along. Um, so uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin, who are still together, you know, Master and Apprentice, uh, they uh, rescue they rescue Palpatine, but Grievous escapes. Uh, Padme is now pregnant with Anakin's child. And this is the the child within her um will become luke skywalker of course um so anakin is conflicted he's not ready to settle down when you know there's further jedi training to do and asses to kick basically so anyway palpatine is getting more and more executive powers which suits anakin because he's a closet fascist clearly and uh and yes palpatine actually promotes Anakin to a personal representative on the council. Anakin is still not recognised as a Jedi Master, and this really pisses him off. So, it, it, this is where this is where the film gets really clever, actually. Like, because what you got is the Jedi want Anakin to spy on Palpatine, so they don't trust him. But Anakin is employed by Palpatine, and he is. Uh, and he's been given all these promises of power and stuff. And it's good because it's the actualization of his inner conflict. Finally, like basically he's like, does he stick with the Jedi who aren't giving him, you know, aren't promoting him basically, or does he go to the dark side and, um, you know, realize that power. And it's those scenes where they, the Senate and the Jedi council playing, playing him off each other, which are some of the best in the series, to be honest. Meanwhile, Obi-Wan and Anakin, they're basically Batman and Robin. You know, in you know, in Arkham Knight, I think it's Arkham Knight, where Batman is constantly telling Robin to stay out of it and he's not ready, etc. 
yes, um, yes, yes. And he's just really pissing him off. That's exactly what happens here, basically. Like Anakin say, "I'm ready, I'm ready, I can be a Jedi Master," and and Obi Wan's like, "No, you can't." And of course, the situation that this creates is that Anakin can't realize the power that lies within him through the Jedi, and if and if someone craves power but is denied it by benign leaders, then naturally he's going to go and seek that power through a more malign alternative. Uh, so it's quite cool uh, in the that central conflict is pretty cool. Um, uh, there's some cool scenes in this. They go to Kashyyyk, the Wookiee planet, which I only know because it's in Fallen Order, the game. And it's like pretty cool. It's a big forest planet and it's got buildings made of bones and stuff. So that, that was awesome. Um, there's, I think this one is where I, I realized that George Lucas is very good. What he does with his action sequences is they're very, they must be very well storyboarded. They're very well thought out because he, he's really good at creating action sequences with constant peril. He, what he'll do is there will be some, peril and then and then they'll pile on another peril on top of that so there's always some new little micro disaster in the midst of the action which always keeps it interesting it's not just like oh here's the he's not designing action scenes to look awesome which is tends to be the way that a lot of modern films do it it's like make it look as awesome as possible what he does is he'll tell a mini story within the action scene by piling on these additional perils uh, as it goes on and it makes it quite exciting. So, um, and he, and something else that he does consistently throughout this trilogy, actually, is that he will, he really delivers the goods when it comes to showdowns. Like, there are all these different characters um, who, for most part, yes, discussing trade agreements, etc. But then you know that at some point they're going to kick off, get the lightsabers out, and you're going to have a big <laughs> set piece moment. And you get that. Like all of pretty much all of the matchups you can think of are delivered, so that's good as well. It gets really dark this one because there's this whole scene where Palpatine um, delivers Order sixty six, which is basically where he it's a big plan to it's sort of a crystal nach type purging of the Jedi, and they're all just murdered basically. <laughs> All in one mm. go. He's he just gives the announcement, and you'd, it's it's like a really really harrowing sequence where it cuts between these different locations and just all of these Jedi just getting slaughtered around the place. So that was pretty cool. Uh, you get Samuel L. Jackson wielding a lightsaber. You get Yoda and Kenobi and Obi Wan Kenobi fighting side by side, and of course you get Anakin becoming Darth Vader with the famous meme where he's shouting no. Which you may have seen online. No, it's not. It's, not, it's not the best delivered line. I won't lie. Um, that yeah, seems so like the, a really key sequence to mess up. It really is a key sequence, and he kind of stands up, realizes that he's Vader, and because uh, he sort of like wakes up as Vader, and it goes no into the heavens, and it's like okay, perhaps just. <sighs> Give that one another take, maybe. Yeah, um, or maybe just drop to your knees and don't say anything. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I guess because he's got this helmet on, there's not really any way that he can act it in any other way. Like, mm. I suppose he could. His shoulders could slump. Could just, oh. oh, bugger! Oh, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so Lucas, he finally gets the balance right, this one of like the kind of whimsical humour and the operatic drama. So so this is easily the best of the initial trilogy. And and I think overall, watching the trilogy, it gets a lot of um it gets a lot of criticism. But I think the reason it hangs together is because it's the product of a single mind as in George Lucas. There is a coherent story throughout the throughout the prequel trilogy uh, and a theme and a, a consistent theme about the way that decent young people with great potential can be corrupted by nefarious elders seeking power. And, and knowing that Anakin will become Darth Vader makes the journey only more interesting and dramatic, really. And with Obi-Wan, with... Ewan McGregor being so good as well. We get to see him go from a near finished product to a really ballsy hero by the end of it. And, and we will see, we will see when I talk about the modern trilogy, we'll see what happens when there isn't a coherent vision (laughs) across films. It is an issue. So I think these, these are the films, these prequel trilogies are films I've been most likely to return to of the main series because they have the most variety. They have the political intrigue. They have a love story of sorts. They have big scale action. They have imaginative locations and they have crazy alien designs. But they have profit and loss statements as well. In the first one. <laughs> exactly. What else could you need? But yeah, saying that there are also some pretty cheesy performances, clunky writing, really little bit dodgy cgi and some awkward attempts at kiddie humor the the humor it's like it's like someone's unfunny dad dressing as a clown at their son's party it's just oh god what's this um no that is that is the style of humor it's just like really i thought there was one character but that's the whole film that sense of humor yes no that is that's a a shame I don't know. It's kind of got a goofy charm to it. Like, uh, it's 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 kind of silly, but at the same time, it, it gets the balance between that whimsy and the the space opera pretty well. So, I'd say overall, it, it's yeah. I think it's a decent trilogy. It picks up right at the end where it needs to. The really it, important it, part it gets right. Is there uh, like a post kind of post sequence where you hear the kind of. <sighs> And then a light comes on and Darth Vader's wife rolls over and says, can you sleep in the living room on the couch? Because I'm up at five. Does that, does that happen? <laughs> then it's 4.45. <laughs> I need those magical 15 minutes. <laughs> and the thing is, he would be like... <sighs> and she'd say, I know you're awake. I can't see your face, but you, you held your breath when I spoke. And then... <laughs> When you decided you're going to pretend to be asleep, you carried on breathing. So I know you can hear me. Okay. That can you brilliant. take your Can you take your cloak off when you come to bed? <laughs> yeah, because it is stinking because it drags on the floor. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Um, the next film I watched then was Wah from 2007 with Jason Statham and Jet Li. This is a film I've avoided for over a decade because I <laughs> remember. I spoke to my friend, mutual friend, you know, in Plowman, and he said, oh, I've seen that, it's crap. And I was like, oh, okay then, well, just tick that off the list. Um, but I was doing something the other day, I think I, I was hungover, and I wanted something, ah, oh, that's it, I wanted something I could just chuck on the back and that I wasn't too bothered about, but I hadn't seen before. Um, so 
I yeah, I put on War. Never been so much fun. And but as it was kind of going through the introduction sequence and stuff, and it was playing this really. It's Brian Tyler does the music. It's this really tiresome, like robotic, like early 2000s like metal guitar oh god goes through the whole film anyway i was looking up on it and and one of the comments you know like it highlights comments on imdb it said there's no martial arts in this film it's just a really it's just a thriller it's and and i thought in all fairness 2001 jet lee and jason statham yeah i can i think that could be why i was gonna watch it and then didn't because i was like oh it's not a martial arts film of course i i was happy to just let something generic really wash over me and boy was i was i pleased um (laughs) so this is a film where uh jason statham and his partner tom lone uh played by terry chen who we'll come back to uh, starts off um, trying to take down Chinese triads, and uh, they they sort of are after this this mythical uh, assassin called Rogue, who we find out is played by Jet Li. But at the start of the film, you never see his face, and you know it's just he, he's there. They're like, oh my god, that's Rogue. Uh, they get into a bit of a fight. He escapes, but they take down this sort of uh, part of the the Chinese triad, and it cuts to Jason Statham about to go over to Tom Lone's house, his partner for stakes afterwards and his family get murdered by the same assassin and his house burns down and tom lone is dead effectively and jason statham then thinks right you know what i work for the fbi i'm bloody keen on catching that rogue now and uh to the point that his wife says well i'm gonna skedaddle then because you seem quite driven and uh, we got a we got a daughter anyway so the film cuts forward three years and it's just you know it's just basically an hour of jason statham trying to track down Jet Li's character to kill him uh, or under the prim- under the pretense of kind of bringing him in. And Jet Li's character, you just see him going around and sort of uh, doing various assassinations for the um, for the Yakuza, who he's kind of playing off the triads. He's kind of playing them mm. both towards the middle. Now, if anyone wants to watch this film, uh, I am going to spoil it. So this is a spoiler warning. Uh, it's not quite at our 20-year limit, but this is a mm. mid-ranger from 2007, so I, I'm quite comfortable. Um, the film goes on, and it is fine. right? It, it, if you're not expecting... Um, it's a perfect kind of hangover film, because if you're not expecting martial arts, and you're just expecting looking at Jason Statham growling and a really, really miscast Jet Li walking around wearing like a suit and shades and like barely speaking, it's fine, absolutely fine. The the real problem comes at the end, and what actually happens is the reveal through this like pretty tiresome but generic okay hangover film is that Jet Li's character uh, Rogue is actually his old partner who has kind of managed to kill the assassin in, in the, at mm. the start when he when he killed his family, burned his house down to cover it, and then took on his identity in a load of plastic plastic surgery. And there's a bit at the end when he finally gets the head of the Yakuza um, who has been obviously controlling uh, Tom Lone, Jason Statham's partner, thinking he is Rogue, Jet Li's character, because of the surgery. I actually paused the film, right? I paused the film, and I just went on my phone and I just looked I looked at Jet Li and I looked at Terry Chen who plays Tom Lone and mm. I thought right okay right that's that's what you're going with and then I press play and there's a scene when he stabs the Yakuza boss at the end and the Yakuza boss says to him oh, I should have known something was wrong I can't believe I was tricked just because you changed your face and your voice and I thought and your height and your accent and your shoe size and your eye color 
and your entire muscular build, <laughs> your background, <laughs> your personality. And the list goes on. It's a ridiculous plot twist because at the end, of course, I'm not going to do it, but at the, at the start, when Terry Chen, Tom Lone, who is an American Chinese actor, an American Asian actor is talking to Jason Statham and they're just like wisecracking back and forth. And at the end, when Jet Li is saying, yes, I'm Tom Lone, in really broken English, you're like, hmm. <laughs> now that everyone's dead, wouldn't you drop the kind of accent act? It, it really... And of course, there's about a five-inch height difference between them. It's like, what? And, and it completely falls apart. That said, I'm glad that ridiculous twist is in it because otherwise it would just be really, really flat. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, you look back at the whole film and you think, yeah, this is just... If it wasn't for that ridiculous just plot twist that they just said, oh, let's just have a twist at the end so something interesting happens. Um, Where does the war part come into it, then? Uh, well, it was originally called Rogue, because um, oh. he's called Rogue, but apparently that... It was changed, because apparently there's a film <laughs> starring oh. Rada Mitchell and Sam Worthington. Uh, that was released in 2007. They changed. And they call it War, um, mm. and I and I'll tell you, I don't know why it's called War, but there's a moment in this. You know Jason Statham's American accent. I am aware of its existence. Yeah, there is a. If you watch this film and if you play a game with yourself, where Jason Statham has always got. Um, Two, two guys, uh, a black guy and a Chinese guy, uh, sorry, an Asian guy, that kind of are like his partners on, at the FBI, yeah. and as they go to all these different um, things. If you play a game, right, every time Jason Statham says something, and just as the scene is about to end, they look at each other as if to say, like, wow, what a, what a reveal that was, you know, what's going to mm. happen next? But if you pretend in your head, they look at each other questioning Jason Statham's accent. It's a much funnier film, because there's, <laughs> there's a bit, it happens quite a few times, and there's a bit where he says, this wasn't it. This wasn't a murder. This was wah. And I thought, well, and I ruined it. I said, wah? wah. This was, this is wah. And then they, and they look at each other. And I thought, did they look at each other just as the director, Philip Atwell, said, cut, it's pronounced whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was and doing then, an impression of Wario. <laughs> it could be, yeah. Actually, looking at the title now, I can see that they've just blacked out IO. So the film was actually called Wario. But uh, obviously they lost the license or something. But yeah, it's it's a it's a silly film to Based watch. Based on the Virtual Boy game. You wow, that would give you headaches. You know, you said the other day with Resident Evil, you don't believe in like um, putting a film in in the background. But there are films that you don't have to focus on as much yes. as others. This is very much like a. Oh, I'm just gonna chuck something on. Yes. Um, it's it's stupid fun. So yeah, it's uh, it's a thumbs up from me. <laughs> It sounds brilliant, but no martial arts. Uh, no, there's like a, like a couple of flashes of it, but um, yeah, Jet Li's so miscast in this film. It's it's baffling. It's such a waste, isn't it? I just can't. I just don't understand why they do that. In, unless there's an alternative cut for like the Chinese market or something, I just don't understand. Yeah. Um, right then, Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, this was this one was infamous before it was even released because Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the Lego movie guys, they were fired because they were making a comedy and they didn't want a comedy. And so Ron Howard stepped in naturally and reshot three quarters of the film. Ended up being one of the um, most expensive films ever made. Oh, wow. uh, so Han Solo is he's a street rat 
who escapes his home world by joining the army. Can, can, can I separate... really quickly? Sorry to be rude. I, this was the only time in my 37 years on this earth that I thought I might watch that because it's a, I'd come fresh off the back of what did I watch? Ant-Man and the Wasp, a standalone right. Marvel film in that kind of impenetrable canon. And I yeah. thought, oh, maybe so. And I enjoyed it. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe Solo could be the same. And I heard a lot of good things. And I still didn't watch it. Um, well, we'll see. I would not recommend this as your entry point. But um, so, yeah, anyway, so he, he joins the army, but he gets separated from his girlfriend, played by Amelia Clark, the one from Game of Thrones. Uh, he wants to get back to her, so he escapes the army, hooks up with a criminal, played by Woody Harrelson. Good. Good. Uh, and they, they get into deep water with a crime boss, played by Paul Bettany, who, it turns out, is betrothed to Han's ex-girlfriend. So, in a ridiculous twist. Um, so anyway, so they need to, Han and Woody, they, they, need to, they need to go and do a mission so that Paul Bettany won't kill them. So they trek off across the galaxy. Um, the good parts of this is that there's some good world building. Uh, we, we get to see what it's like to live under the Empire, you know, this sort of like totalitarian state. And and there are, there are, you get a lot of references in the dialogue to kind of home worlds and events, which you don't understand, but they do flesh it out, flesh out the world at least. Um, they get around Han Solo being a sexually aggressive sleazebag by making this story about love. Um and he, it's Alden, what's his name? Alden Ironreich, Ironreich. He's the guy from, um, uh, what's it called? The Hail Caesar. Did you ever see that? Yes, yes, yes. The one who's like, who can't say the line. Um, oh, right. Would, okay, would yeah, that yeah. it were and all that, which yeah, is very yes, funny. Yes, yes, yeah, so is. he's that guy um anyway so yes so but amelia clark oh i just find her just so amdram it's annoying anyway paul bettany is really good he's genuinely really menacing in this there are some good set pieces there's this train heist sequence which is like with a train which kind of spins around or 360 degrees on its tracks which is really cool but there's some really dull action sequences as well there's a really confusing and lengthy shootout in a mine it's dark can't tell what's going on um there's a totally nonsensical monster in space slash black hole sequence which is lifted straight out of jj abrams star trek reboot so that was pointless um and to be honest i mean i was quite enjoying it up to a point but it totally this film totally runs out of steam halfway through um, because the whole purpose up to that point is that Solo is trying to get back to his girlfriend. It's quite a simple idea. Basically, it powers the film because, of course, whatever he does, it's always in the service of getting back to his girlfriend. But then when he when he just randomly meets her halfway through, um, the, dramatically, the film just stops dead and it becomes something completely different. It's really dominated by needlessly expanded upon expanding upon references from other films in the series so there's like constant fan service like references to stuff that's referenced in um george lucas's films like like lines which are just there for texture they will you'll see it happen on the screen and it's like oh god no please no i know that from like this throwaway line has been expanded into a 20 minute set piece it's like please 
Um, yeah. So it's the problem with it is is that it's it's the Prometheus problem. It's the it's providing it's a film that provides answers to questions that no one was ever asking. And I think that's probably why it didn't do very well, to be honest, because it really did flop hard. It's the only Star Wars film to lose money. Really? Uh, Solo? Okay. Yeah. There is... It's just so many so many things you've seen before in Star Wars films. There's a sassy droid, like a sarcastic droid, um, who's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the Fleabag woman. Y- yes, not, yes, yes. Not funny at all. Uh, the... <laughs> Um, the writing, yeah, the writing's all over the shop. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird. Like Woody Harrelson, I swear he's just missing for a big section in the middle of the movie. I didn't even know he was on the ship. It could cut to him and it's like, all right, you're on there, are you? Okay, it's cool. It's got a really generic musical score. It sounds like, the score sounds like a temporary generic orchestral track. You know, if you imagine that you're watching like a, a test screening but they hadn't done the score yet and they just put some like dramatic music over the top that's what it sounds like all the way through um which is probably true because i mean if they were re-editing it and stuff it probably is partly to blame so yeah, uh, yeah. i'll get on to rogue one in a bit because that's the other solo uh, that's the other spin-off film and but but basically this rogue one works because it has new characters, new technology. This film starts off pretty fresh, but it just gets it gets dragged down gradually as it picks up all of these like kind of um, iconic things. moments. Yeah, um, I, things you've been referred to, things you're waiting for, meeting Chewbacca, going on the Kessel Run, these things that are referenced in other films, and then you know they're coming, and as each one comes along, it just drags the film down even more. Um, it's like... I don't know. It's like a new toy that's just gathering dust as it gets, you know, chucked around the place. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it starts off good, gets really drab by the end, and in the end, it's just like, oh, this just doesn't need to exist, does it? So that's I would re- not advise this as your entry point. That's really disappointing because um, I that was the one because it's all when you get into a. St- something as long running as star wars um what, yeah. or like the marvel films when there's a little standalone you're like oh i'll have a little goosey and you know they'll reference other things from the original trilogy that i will kind of oh i, I know i know even i know what they're referring to yeah. but if that if that film is crap then you're like uh, uh you know if you kind of i mean the closest i get to films in space is event horizon so <laughs> you know i've got no i, I, I don't know i don't think i'll ever watch a star wars film i i think i'm doing pretty well without it Mm-hmm. Um, well we'll see we'll see because well, okay, okay. we talk about rogue one okay okay so i'm going to talk about the next three days which is a paul haggis film from 2010 starring russell crowe and elizabeth banks about uh, a woman who may or may not have killed her boss um i think it's a i think it's a law firm or a dentist or something it's never really um and <laughs> they're very different things and and she gets put to prison for the murder for a good 20 years. And Russell Crowe is determined as a kind of everyman to break her out and reunite the family somewhere that, if you like, doesn't have an extradition treaty. Um, I weirdly like this. I've been on a bit of a secret Liam Neeson and Russell Crowe 
binge the last um, month or two. And of course, after watching State of Play last week, and what was the other one I watched as well? There was another one I watched, Russell Crowe. Anyway, State mm. of Play, um, where he's the kind of schlubby journalist. I love that yeah. word. And it, and in this, he's actually quite handsome. Now, uh, there's a sequence in this actually where he is. Uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yeah. So Russell Crowe is in this film, and I really liked how he he comes across as like a a, a loving husband uh, trying mm. to do anything for his wife. Who, I, and and it, it's never. He is always an everyman throughout this entire film. He kind of gets through things by luck, and I like how when he gets dragged into these really underground situations like when he's trying to get passports made um for his family so they can get out the country after he breaks his wife out of prison and everyone is saying to him you you, you know you want this too much you're, you're going to mess this up you're too you're too involved and he still plows on with it and the the film does the trick a really nice trick of showing us his plan but not showing us all of it but yet when we do get to see it sort of run through and, and, and the effects of it, we don't feel cheated. Well, I didn't feel cheated by how it mm. kind of resolves itself. Um, <laughs> I did like in this film, it did make me laugh how Russell Crowe is so fixated on getting Elizabeth Banks out of prison at almost any cost, even when she is kind of hinting to him, like, just, just, just fine, just leave me here. And he's like, no, no, it's not about me. You need to be with our son. When we do see his son, um, <laughs> his son is so like clearly needs his father to be more attentive clearly needs more attention there's a scene where they're like at a, at a park and olivia wilde is there that woman is pretty i'm just gonna come out and say it i don't care who yes. i don't care what email we get she's pretty and she's kind of and weirdly russell crowe is like it is attractive in this film because he's a little bit broken mm. but he's um he, he's just you know he's he's bright of eye and, and he's dressed a little bit like a geography teacher but she kind of makes you know chatter with him and yeah. you know you can you can see there'll be an attraction there effectively and anyway yeah. i mean russell crowe's he's not ugly it's just he's he struggles with the charm factor doesn't he let's face it yeah but if you imagine that the attraction is kind of the fact that he's a little is he needs to be a little bit mothered, a little bit cared for. It right, works okay, yeah. if he's a little yeah. bit kind of. Oh, so that's where that comes from. Um, <laughs> there's a scene where Olivia Wilde clearly comes onto him in a park, and it just it made me laugh out loud basically because I was thinking you're so focused on your wife, getting away from a prison, maybe spend a bit of time with your son. Anyway, so what happens is the thing that made me laugh is he is. It's not supposed to be funny, by the way. Olivia Wilde comes over to him. He's clearly like sort of chatting with her, but trying to be polite. But it feels awkward. He's in love with his wife. He hasn't obviously hasn't had any kind of um, hasn't had sex in a while because she's in prison. So you can tell there's that urge, and he's fighting it. And she's like really friendly, really pretty, really attentive. And he says to his son, "Oh, it was uh, come on, Luke, let's go." And it cuts to his son, and his son is sat on the end of a slide, holding like a load of pebbles in his hand, just looking at them. <laughs> and I thought, and, he, and the way Russell Crowe is like, "Come on, come on, Luke, that's enough." Off we trot. And his son just throws the stones on the floor and like really sort of middle distance staring, like walks off to the gate. And I and and this isn't addressed in the film. Every time he's like, stay here, Luke. He's like, okay. And he just looks out of a window. Or when he walks in the room and he goes, You you okay, buddy? And he's just like sat looking at a blank bit of paper or something. And it's never like drawn attention to that, like he's being a, a really bad father <laughs> and really not paying attention to it. So I found that mildly music. Um 
I did. Uh, I think his name is pronounced Jason Bege is in this film. And I remember him from Californication. He is a man who has a voice that is husky and I fancy him. And also in this film, playing a really, really weird role is Brian Dennehy. Um, right. He plays Russell Crowe's father. And this, I know he's passed away now. I've always liked Brian Denny because it, it reminds me of going to my grandmother's house and watching loads of, um, I think they're called Jack Reed, those TV movies where he's like a detective or whatever. And he's, he always like holds a special place in my heart as yeah. just being like a cool hulk of a man. And in this film, he plays this, um, he's, he looks quite frail in this. He's quite bulky still, but you can tell yeah. he's, he's get, getting on. And every time Russell Crowe is like dropping his son off to his parents to go off, dropping his son to his parents to go off and basically do stuff. Um, Brian Henney, like you never hear him speak at all. He just kind of like reacts and he raises his eyebrows and like, oh, you know, hey son, it's all silent. And there are some moments in this film, like I was watching and just thinking, it's such a weirdly reined in performance. So when yeah. you when it when it eventually does cut to to old Bray, uh, at like key moments, it's really weirdly touching because he's mm. obviously distanced from his son. Like that. The other thing I liked in this film, it contains what you, you know how we've had my favorite slaps in a film and um i think well with my favorite gags in a film this film may well contain my favorite oh shit face um there's a bit where russell crowe is trying out what's called a bump key which apparently exists where he's trying to get a key that he, he can use as like a skeleton key and you like mm. you put it in tap it and it pops the lock up and if you if you've got the knack you can kind of twist most locks old-fashioned locks there's mm-hmm. a scene in this film where he's in a massive crowd in the waiting to go in to have a conversation on those phones with his wife in the prison and he tries it out in in like a lift next to him and it gets jammed and he snaps it off in the lock and he looks at, and he looks up almost at the camera and his face is absolutely poster worthy it's like oh no Oh no 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 no! It's brilliant. <laughs> One day I should have posters up of these favorite moments in films. Um, favorite it, grimaces. It's just nice. I think this film would be very different without Russell Crowe. He plays the determined man at the expense of anything really well, uh, because yeah. he kind of looks like a slightly nice everyman. And I, I was I was on board with him, and I liked how he was fumbling through this horrible underworld that he was having to get involved in. And he's never heroic. He's always just acting almost on instinct. And um, yeah, I, I liked it. I th- I've seen it before, and I watched yeah. it again. And, and I thought, no, this is like a, this is a solid film. I'm I'm happy with this. Where is it available? This one is on Netflix. Mm. I might have to check that out. That sounds intriguing. When was it made? Uh, two thousand. I'm going to say ten. Yeah, two thousand ten. Yeah. Olivia Wilde. I suppose no. I suppose she's not. Yeah, she would have been around then. Yeah, she would have been young. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I suppose it would have been. Um, she was twenty six because I did yeah. the math, and um, yeah, she was twenty six, and he would have been like in his early to mid forties, early nineties. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, she she comes up and sits next to him in the playground. She's like, "Oh hey, I'm Olivia Wilde. You know what? What? How? Who's your son?" And he just goes, "Who's there? <laughs> Reveal yourself to me." And she's like, "Oh, I'll leave you to it. Actually, you well, it busy. would have been a different film." if it cut to like him like sitting there milky eyed looking at his at elizabeth banks like 
oh, thanks for visiting me. And then he's on the phone in the prison going, who said that? <laughs> Even though he's holding the phone to his wife. <laughs> Even though he made it all the way there on his own. <laughs> uh, and the son saying, Dad, are we going to visit Mom? Who's there? <laughs> Even though he's driving a car to a prison. Um, <laughs> right, okay. So, yes. Next three days worth a watch. Good. Excellent. Might well watch that. Um, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Um, by the way, Rogue One and Solo aren't the first Star Wars movie spin-offs because there okay. was Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure, and Ewoks Battle for Endor in the mid-80s, both of which were made for TV, naturally. I tried watching Caravan of Courage and made it about 10 minutes in. I, it was cheap. Caravan of Courage sounds like what a load of um, what a load of men would call it when they just drink a load of pale ale on like a weekend break from their wives. Yeah, that would have made a more interesting film, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> rather than Warwick Davis in a bear suit. Do the Ewoks turn uh, up in the modern films, by the way? Because I know they're from the 80s and 70s. Uh, no, not in the modern ones. No. Um, right. Anyway, Rogue One. Is solo sucked. Rogue One is really good. That's the that's the headline. Um, so Rogue One it bridges the gap between the prequel trilogy and the and A New Hope, Lucas's nineteen seventy seven film, chronologically. Um, it's about a group of rogue rebels who have to get into an Empire base and transmit the plans for the Death Star to the rebel fleet. Because that's how A New Hope starts, with Darth Vader chasing down these plans. So this one's directed by Gareth Edwards. He's a guy who made Monsters. Um, it was a very good little movie. And he was the one who also made Godzilla and was scuppered by a terrible script. Um, mm. It has a very different tone, especially to Solo. It's a very dark and foreboding tone. It's basically a heist movie. And also a war, I guess a bit of a war movie as well. It has the same like retro aesthetic as the new trilogy, but it deviates from the formula much more. It it doesn't have J.J. Abrams really wearying hyperactivity. It has a, a much more grounded style with a lot of handheld camera work. What's interesting about it is, is that you know that everyone is going to die. But you also know that they are going to succeed. Spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> Just by the nature of what came afterwards, you know that none of these people are going to survive. The, but the fact that it can still maintain tension throughout is because of good sc screenwriting, good characterization. And I particularly like Donnie Yen in this. It, his character, he's this blind warrior, but he has this utter belief in the Force, despite having no Force powers. He's just he just has pure belief, so he's able to fight people and avoid injury just through, like, sound and stuff. It's really cool. And, yeah, in fact, the, really the theme of the whole film is belief. The it, It's like the crew, these rebels, they know they're not coming back from this mission, but um, but Felicity Jones's character, the, main, the hero, she convinces them of this greater good, essentially, that that will drive them drive them on. She is an unusual female character. She's she's not sexualized in any way, and she's and she is as moody as any taciturn male hero, really. And her she has this like all encompassing grief about her father, 
who she believes is dead, and he's played by Mads Mikkelsen. Good. Uh, and that's nicely played out. Um, yeah, the, another reason why I think it's, apart from it being like a standalone heist movie, I think the reason why it's quite a good entry point is because the force, the magical aspect of it, is basically absent from the film. Um, so that helps it sidestep some of the confusion about what the force actually does. Um, and so it's just a really simple, enjoyable and very well-made action movie, essentially. And, and thanks to its like standalone status, I think it feels like it's definitely the best of the modern movies. Well, I don't know. We'll come to that, but it's, it's definitely the better standalone movie anyway. So yeah, very good. Rogue one. Does it? So it doesn't do the thing that solo did where, it's not hinting at no. and gonna drive down. Oh, okay, okay. There are, I mean, there are people, characters in it from the other films. They slightly unwisely resurrect um, Peter Cushing in CG, but um, you know, I there's nothing in it where it's like, oh, here's the moment where this happens, and it's like, here's a wink and a nod. It's like you wouldn't have to know about anything about the other films to enjoy this. Uh, it mean it. I suppose it enriches it, but you could watch this as a standalone movie, and it would still be, it still be good and impactful. Mm. Okay, because yeah. it's all new characters. So, um, yeah. So from what you said so far, that is the one that. How did the fans react to Rogue One? I think it's very well liked, actually. Oh, nice. Um, okay. Partly because I think it is separate from the other ones. It doesn't. You, you can't really have any controversy about how it's depicting certain characters, or whatever, because they're all just a completely fresh cast. So it's like, all right, this is just a good story written in that universe, if you see what I mean. With isn't that isn't like, that telling though? Isn't that telling that you can have a, like a whole new cast, totally separate from all of the kind of lore, and just have a really good yeah. Yes. That is quite telling. Um, the Christmas Chronicles two. Um, this is a. I watched. Have you seen the original Christmas Chronicles? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I tried to start watching Chris, Christmas Chronicles too. Well, I'm here to say that um, don't bother finishing that that oh, jaunt of yours. The, the first one, I've got this thing in my head. There's a weird block in my head about Kurt Russell did Poseidon, and then he effectively, apart from some, you know comedy where he managed a baseball team he effectively and i think he came back for grindhouse then for like mm -hmm. a little in between he he effectively left the acting industry for like pretty much decade or 12 years and uh when he came back the first film i saw him in anyway was um the hateful eight and i loved that film because i loved how it was very stagey and it was it was kurt russell and i got i got to look at kurt russell which is what i want from every film i watch so when i when i watched the christmas chronicles i was kind of kept sailing through by Kurt Russell's really infectious laugh and his like beautiful beard and the fact that it's like a Christmas film that I thought it was Kurt Russell there. I, I was just having a good time. You know, it was a new Christmas film. I don't watch many of them. This is last year. So the Christmas Chronicles two starts off and it's two years have passed and the, the children from the first film have grown up a little bit. And what happens is a character played by Julian Dennison, who is the New Zealand actor that played in one of my absolute favorite films of all time hunt for the wilder people with sam uh, neil yeah sam please never die neil um 
<laughs> uh, he is like a, so Julian Dennison is like an, an, a sort of a was an apprentice to Santa Claus uh, his name is Belsnickel and he eventually wants more and more and more and becomes a sort of evil elf and in turning evil he becomes the thing he hates the most which is human and he's sort of expelled from the North Pole and he comes back and sort of hatches a plan to steal the the Christmas star on Santa's Christmas tree at the North, North Pole which is uh, a fragment of the Star of Bethlehem. So when that goes, it's basically the equivalent of knocking your foosbox off. <laughs> and, uh, and and that obviously affects the North Pole. Foosbox off, cans out. And um, yeah, so boom, Santa's foosbox has been knocked off and the whole film is him trying to get it back on and, and uh, try to deal with delivering the presents to children all over the world and um, trying to get Belsnickel back on the side of the Jedi's little, little callback there. Yeah, nice. The problem is this film, as much as the first one was sentimental and about the spirit of Christmas, this one really hammers it home. It's mm. great t- to see Goldie Horn back in a film. Like, I don't yes. know what she's done since Private Benjamin, quite frankly. But <laughs> it's really good to see her like in a film and she's she looks fantastic. I follow her on Instagram and she just seems like an amazing, lovely woman. And I thought, oh, it's good to see Goldie Horn again. Amazing. The problem is this film is so crushingly sentimental, and uh, I'm, I, and in the absolute sort of um, opposite to a film I'm going to talk about later on in Jingle Jangle with Forrest Whitaker, good. It, it's the music in this film when it happens, it, it's cringeworthingly bad. Like the, when you know it's mm. all about the reindeers can only travel when there's enough sort of Christmas belief and cheer in the mm. queue. Really auto-tuned kind of really overproduced pop song and you're like oh god please don't um and it just goes on and on and it, it goes on like this with this really like pretty gen- there's some like nice moments in it but I, the by the end when the child the family the sort of human family are like reunited and on a beach mm-hmm. and sing <laughs> there's a bit of the start where the child kate's uh sort of her mother's new boyfriend is trying to kind of ingratiate himself in the family and he says oh my favorite song is you know oh christmas tree and he starts singing it to the family and the the daughter walks off and the wife turns around to her new sort of beau and says oh that's like her father who's obviously isn't here anymore that's his favorite song and i thought oh that's weird because it's a shit song like if anyone told me their favorite christmas song was a christmas tree i just assume they'd only ever heard one christmas song so that's just a shit boring tedious repetitive song so at the end of the film when they all gather hand in hand looking at santa flying across the sky singing oh christmas tree a cappella with really auto-tuned voices to the point that it sounds like a robot singing a song with just the pitches shifted i was like i really this is so charmless this is such a charmless like by the numbers stapled together film and uh, i they call this on wikipedia i'm looking at it now it's called the christmas chronicles 2 but i've seen it other places called the christmas chronicles part 2 and i am very prepared for it to not be a part 3 if the trajectory of quality is anything to go by there will be a part 3 100% Oh, oh, Rupert, I'm going to say two words. Well, I'm going to say a few words, actually. Directed and written by Chris Columbus. Yeah. Yeah, that is. doesn't surprise me. Um, I, the excessive sentimentality and it, I, I think what part, partly what bothers me about these sorts of Christmas films, um, these pure Christmas films, is that they... 
they push this really, really aggressive sentimentality and uh, and joy, <laughs> like forced joy. And it it makes and the fact that I feel I, that I feel repulsed by it makes me feel like I'm a curmudgeon, that I'm a bar humbug person who's not positive and has no joy. But actually, that's not true. It's like the it, it's it's ex- like sentimentality is excessive indulgence of of those sorts of emotions so um there is something very wrong with that and there's nothing wrong it doesn't make you a curmudgeon for disliking that that level of saccharine sentimentality no it's um it's almost like there is there's there's a part in the film where she goes they travel back in time here in kurt russell and she obviously really misses her father who because the film can't have any kind of any like loose plot threads or get into anything too deep emotionally deep her father's just like not there he's obviously he's obviously brown bread and he's judge dread and <laughs> there's there's a bit where they go back in time and they're in an airport and they have to the, the sort of plot point is that they have to get enough christmas cheer at this airport which is tough to get the, the reindeer to want to fly again um and yeah, and and she bumps into who is someone who is clearly like her father, mm. and and she, as they leave, she says to Kurt Russell, oh, "Thank you so much for allowing me to see my father one last time." And mm. I said, "Did you meet your father one last time, or did you meet a really disinterested, disbelieving boy who was like, what in an airport?" <laughs> um, it was like a really weird emotional yeah. beat. There's also a bit where there's a bit where she gets in trouble trying to buy batteries from. Um, from the airport sort of newsstand and she gives like a $20 bill and the woman says, Oh, this is clearly fake. Cause obviously this is the seventies and mm. the serial number of this is the 2020. Ha ha ha. But then we found out and she gets in trouble with the police, which kicks off a whole little sort of side bit. We find out the Santa later on, 10 minutes later, puts his hand in his pocket. He can just pull out cash. He can just pull it out. So why <laughs> didn't he pull it out then? Um, yeah. So yeah, just, just, no, just cheesy, a cheesy Christmas. The, not the worst kind of Christmas film, but that kind of oh, this is just a Christmas film. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm not. I won't bother watching that then. Um. But the first one's all right. You said. Yeah, I may have been blinded by my love for Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's cameo yeah. at the end, but that was very much more than we needed. That's fine. It's totally fine. Okay, how are we doing for time? What are we on? Ooh. 95 minutes right okay i'll um what i'll do is i'll blast through i'll blast through the this trilogy the original trilogy just in one fell swoop because well you know it's it's pretty well established i'd say so star wars episode four a new hope um this was actually just called star wars until it was re-released in 1981 and that's when it got the episode four subtitle because of course it was just known as star wars originally um it, it it feels kind of charmingly simple um, compared with the pre- prequels. So there's no real broader political intrigue as, as such. It's it's very simple and linear. Um, you basically got Darth Vader, formerly Anakin. Darth Vader rocks up on his Death Star. The good guys rescue the princess, and then the good guys hook up with an army to destroy the Death Star. Uh, to be fair, it did feel like it already felt like Lucas had bigger ideas about the broader universe. Um, not sure he quite envisaged the way it would go, but anyway. Um, yeah, the, the dialogue is quite clunky at times, but I think 
now it it can be difficult to comprehend just how far ahead of its time the original Star Wars was in 1977 because in terms of production values, production design, the futurist style, the action editing, the operatic storytelling, because you've got to remember that like sci-fi tended to be pretty trashy or more often by this point in the 70s, just weird and cerebral. You know, you had stuff like Phase 4, and Silent Running, Soylent Green... Oh. Altered states. <laughs> like these were films which were just a bit trippy more than anything. And so this, but this, uh, like Star, Star Wars, it, it introduced that kind of blue collar lived in sci fi that you would see Ridley Scott use, for example, in Alien in 1979, where things look like they've been used, you know? Because before this, if it was a future vision, it tended to be like pristinely clean and utopian but this was a future that was lived in and and i think that means it, it doesn't feel too dated now um some of the sword fights and that feel a bit static nowadays but it is a really good adventure story which has got which uses fairy tale tropes in uh, in an interesting way um and then there was empire strikes back a couple of years later so this was um this is the only film of the first six not written by lucas um and it's directed by Irvin Kirshner, who he was a bit of a journeyman correct, a director, I won't lie. His uh, directing career ended with Robocop 2. So, uh, That's yeah. a nasty film, that is. Yes. Uh, and so this one, Darth Vader is hunting down Luke and Leia, who are on an ice planet, which is chilly. It's colder than the bathroom in my old flat, which is saying something. Um <laughs> So Vader, he rocks up and trashes the place. Luke Skywalker is separate from the others, so he goes off to meet Yoda and continue his Jedi training. Uh, Luke, he bails on the training pretty sharpish, I have to say, um, because he has a vision that his friends are going to die. So he he blunders headlong into a trap um, and a big showdown with, uh, uh, with Darth Vader and uh, gets his hand cut off. Big revelation about his father really is. Han Solo gets frozen in carbonite in this one. It's all quite bleak on paper, but it's surprisingly fun for a film where basically the good guys get their asses totally kicked halfway through. <laughs> um, I do wonder, I did wonder this time watching it, why doesn't Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda tell Luke that Darth Vader is his father? Because it would be quite key information, I would have thought, but, you know, whatever. Um I, I think this is this is another example uh, or a, a classic example of what the the series ability to pile that peril upon peril that I was talking about before because you got this this opening attack on the size planet you get in a they escape off the planet and then they're into an asteroid field it's just like one thing after another um, but it is the one from the original trilogy with the least kind of space adventuring and so it has the fewest cool monster designs. But when it gets to Return of the Jedi, Star Wars Episode 6, um, it corrects this to a, a great degree. And there's loads of weird monsters in Return of the Jedi, which is cool. And it, it starts off in Jabba the Hutt's realm. You know, Jabba the Hutt is a big slug-like thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And his realm, it's like Midian from Nightbreed. It's just like yeah. just creatures everywhere. And, of course, they're all awesome puppets. However, of course... 
George Lucas added CGI stuff later on. And mm. this in this one, he adds like weird singing CGI creations amongst the puppets and it doesn't look good. I won't lie. This one is, uh, again, like Lucas wrote the story, but it's directed by Richard Marquand. And he I is someone I know from a pretty nifty little horror film called The Legacy, which has starred Sam Elliott from the 70s. It's actually Good. where Sam Elliott and Catherine Ross met, who's then they're still married, I think. Um, yeah, Richard and Richard Marquand was born in Cardiff, in fact. So oh, really? Sort of... Why would anyone leave Sam Elliott? I'd be married to Sam Elliott now if I had the chance. Exactly. <laughs> um, so... <clears throat> Uh, in this one, Luke and Leia and the droids go to uh, go to rescue Han Solo because he, he was frozen and he was sold to Jabba the Hutt. Things happen. They end up on Endor, which is the planet of the Ewoks, which we talked about earlier. And there's a big war on the on Endor whilst Luke goes to confront um, Darth Vader's boss, the evil Emperor. Um, and of course Palpatine from the previous films and and basically he wants to go there take down the Emperor and hopefully convince his father Darth Vader to stop being such an asshole um, it's an actual line from the film and <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, anyway one of the criticisms thrown at the new trilogy is that um, Ray, the main character becomes a powerful Jedi with minimal training uh, minimal training well in this film luke skywalker literally has an afternoon in the swamp with yoda um and and then gets his ass kicked by darth vader and the next time we see him he's like super powerful so i don't know where that happened but so it's it's the same issue again um uh, and you know yoda's like oh no you don't need any more training you're good to go fine afternoon um, in the swamp sounds like something that my machine would churn out Sounds, sounds like a uh, Credence Clearwater Revival <laughs> album. Live um, album. Yeah. Um, Carrie Fisher, by the way, in Return of the Jedi, she looks zonked, by the way. Really? She was on, she was on coke and prescription medication at the time. And there's a scene where, like, she's driving, like, this forest, uh, this speeder through the forest. And obviously it's meant to be an exciting sequence where it's like, you know, he's dashing amongst the trees. She looks like she's fallen asleep. She's just, <laughs> she's not there at all. Um, well, yeah. So overall, the original trilogy, uh, the original Lucas trilogy, it's, um, it's fun as a swashbuckling adventure, I would say. And it's, and it's efficient in its storytelling up to a point. And I'd say that the prequel trilogy, um, which obviously made later, but set before. I'd say that that is much more complex and psychologically robust with better characterization, but there's a lot of flab. With this trilogy, with the original trilogy, you you don't get that flab, really. I mean, it's just better storytelling. Um, better storytelling, but perhaps missing some of the world building that you introduce later. I but, wonder if I'd ever approach... Uh any star wars fan around the world and say to them in their language whatever it is how would you describe the original star wars trilogy episodes four to six and they would describe it as efficient in this storytelling <laughs> yeah well we'll see when i discuss the final trilogy quick question what, so what can happen with awkward storytelling 
with the first three films in the 70s and early 80s being yes. episodes four, five, and six, but just yeah. being called Star Wars, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then in 1981, they were then rebranded as four, five, and six. But then we didn't get the first three episodes for like yeah. another 20 years. Why was that? So basically, this was, I mean, obviously they did, they wouldn't have known at the time that Star Wars was going to be such a big hit. But yeah. it's, it, one thing it really doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like Star Wars is a complete standalone. It, it is a standalone film, but it, it doesn't feel jarring the fact that there are two sequels to it. So it's clear that George Lucas did have an idea for a bigger story. And it was, and he had this idea for a, a prequel trilogy that what happened before. So that's why he added the subtitles um, in 1981. Well, 1981 must've been when Empire came out. So, mm-hmm. so it was quite clear early on that he did have some ideas for it. It is a weird thing, though, when you think about it. What an odd way to do things, like to to label them four, five, and six, and then not do anything with to actually fill in the blanks for another twenty years. It's very odd. Yeah, I thought they were going to say, oh, there were books or something, but literally yeah. just no. Okay, fair enough. Um, Jingle Jangle: A Christmas Journey. Um, this is well. This is the thing, right? Faye uh, was like again. Jingle Jangle, boom, Christmas Yana goes. And I had low hopes because this is, we watched this straight after, like the, the morning after watching um, uh, Christmas Chronicles 2. And I had no hopes. I just thought, oh, this is just going to be tedious. And then she said, it stars Forrest Whitaker. And I, as you know, Rupert, mm-hmm. I do not mind Forrest Whitaker. And I thought, oh, that's really weird because you see him in like these really heavy-duty, dramatic or cerebral roles, and this is like a kind of a knockabout like, Christmas film. Well, it, just let me interject here because there's another reason to watch Rogue One is because Forrest Whitaker's in it. So you need to know. See, well, this is, okay, that's that's strong. That's a strong yeah, comment. Another, another tick, it's another tick <laughs> on the checklist. Um, This... Yeah, so this film. I'm just having a quick look. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, th- this film stars someone called um, Geronicus Jangle. It's it's in a, a very fictional uh, Victorian Victorian setting where there's far more affluence than effluence, uh, and it stars yeah Geronicus uh, G- G- Jangle, who pl- is played by uh, Forrest Whitaker, or when he's younger, he's not. Uh, he's played by John Legend, I think, <laughs> as like an inventor and a toy maker, uh, and he owns this place called Jangles and things, and he makes these amazing like sort of automatons and these ridiculously you know uh steampunky kind of toys that everyone absolutely loves and what happens is he has got uh, an, an apprentice much like christmas chronicles 2 but this is better who steals his kind of book of inventions and steals mm. steals his newest um, invention which is this kind of matador miniature automaton or matador voiced by ricky martin good um and he steals and they take it away and they they and in doing so, they steal away um, Geronicus Jangle's belief in himself and his faith in himself, and thus his ability to create toys. You sound like you're about to say something. It's it. It sounds like you're describing a dream to me that you've had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you didn't describe it as a nightmare because this would be totally fine. Absolutely um, fine. Um, so yeah, it's so, and then and then it cuts forward about 30 40 years and it, he is effectively a, a forest Whitaker is effectively like a broken kind of pawnbroker in this uh 
in his old building that is just going to be foreclosed because he can't afford anything and he's just a broken shell of a man who like mumbles to himself and is just really socially awkward and then he gets visited by his granddaughter called journey jangle who wants to who has got the kind of ability that he used to have this sort of spark of invention and she's trying the whole film is here trying to get him to sort of um you know rediscover the joy of creation this is a good film <laughs> this is a really good film um it's and it is purely down to two things one is the music to uh, and the second one is just Forrest Whitaker. He is it's <laughs> he's such like a heavy duty character to play this role, mm. and it could so easily have become this cheesy. Like the kiddie stuff is there where they're going off on their journeys, and you know there's like the, the songs. The songs are, are really memorable, and then they whilst they're obviously cleaned up to a point they're not so fiercely robotically auto-tuned like a lot of christmas films are like that will ferrell one i saw was was oh, unlistenably auto-tuned and christmas chronicles 2 is there's like a the whole film is like a celebration and mm. i i didn't notice until an hour when faye pointed out that there's it's a mostly apart from hugh bonneville i think a mostly black cast as well mm. i laughed at one point in this film at the start i laughed and i laughed and I don't think it was supposed to be as funny as I found it. Um, where Forrest, he he plays this amazing. I gotta say, when he's like interacting with his granddaughter, the fact that he's like the mumbles to himself and his kind of almost his almost like stubborn refusal to be happy is really endearing. <laughs> and there's a bit of the start of this film where um, there's a woman who kind of does deliveries to his store, like food deliveries and stuff. She clearly fancies him. She's like a really buxom woman, uh, and she clearly really fancies him. At the start of the film, he comes and she he's just making not making eye contact. You know, like hello, Mrs. Jones, whatever name is, blah blah. And she just bursts into this really raunchy, this kind of raunchy, seductive, like no 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 kind of song, and starts like <laughs> swinging her head back and dancing up the stairs. And Forrest Whitaker is just interjecting throughout the song as if he's not aware he's in a film. Um, like he's standing there watching a dance with this kind of bemused look on his face, and um, there's a bit where she like leans on the stairs really far back and like oh, and then she comes around and he just says, "You drunk?" And and then she keeps on singing, and then these three men come out spinning out from behind like um, crates in his house and start doing this dance routine, and he just says, "Oh, this backing dancers." And, and it's like it's like the amusement to what's happening. I laughed until I wept. Um, yeah, it, it's it's just a good film. And what's nice is it is a Christmas film. It's based specifically based on the lead up to Christmas and you know presents and toys right. and all that stuff. But it's not overly about that. It's more about him trying to kind of rediscover his um his childhood creativity and imagination. And it's the plot is just completely you know you know exactly what's going to happen, but. It's it's surprisingly funny and a surprisingly charming and endearing film, and it's all down to Mr. Whitaker. What's it called again, and where can we see it? This is on Netflix. I think it's a Netflix special, and it's Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. Jingle Jangle. Okay. I may well watch this. I think you should. Yeah. I do like Forrest. And it, it yes. I suppose it's the same appeal. It's what appealed to me about Christmas Chronicles as well, because as in you've got this lead actor who's a bit older and is known for being very intense and curmudgeonly and to see them playing 
you know, a role in such a kind of wholesome film is yeah. an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. So I will watch that. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the music is good. And, and um, I think he sings two or three songs for us, Whitaker. Good. And he's got like a really bass, a really bass voice. And it, it's really nice how the songs are good. The songs are memorable. Like if they yeah. said, oh, I've bought the soundtrack on vinyl, I'd have no problem with Fine. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right then. Well, uh, let's crack on to Star Wars Episode 7 the force awakens so this is one of this is the first of the new trilogy made in 2015 and it is basically a, a retread basically a remake of a new hope the 77 film um albeit much slicker faster editing and a lot more kind of like you know those like or oh, hell no type jokes and woo yeah set pieces um it does it seems much more focused on recapturing the magic of the old movies than it does in telling an original story. But then when you think about it, right, J.J. Abrams, J.J. Abrams, who directed this, his entire career has been built on repackaging other people's ideas. Think about it, right? Mission Impossible 3, he did the Star Trek reboots, did the Star Wars sequels, even Super 8, which was wholly his own thing, was essentially an ode to Spielberg, to Ollie Spielberg. So it does do a very good job of looking like an old Star Wars movie. It's a very convincing job. It, it just doesn't do anything new plot-wise. It certainly doesn't deepen the mythology in any meaningful way. And that's, whether you like them or not, the prequel trilogy that Lucas made in the late 90s, early 2000s, they he made them look very different to the original trilogy. It's very different style, very different tone, uh, very different look to the whole thing. And like it or not, I mean, that should at least be applauded for attempting something. This just feels like a remake. Force Awakens just feels like a remake. And I think it's artistically cowardly. Um, and even J.J. Abrams admitted this himself. He he his kind of reason for this being a throwback, because I think it was in response to George Lucas saying, this is just really derivative. Um, why have you made it like this? And J.J. Abrams himself um, said, oh, we, what I wanted to do was return to, you know, the old style and the classic storytelling so that it would open up the trilogy, the new trilogy to new ideas. And it's just like, well, at what point are you going to bring in the new ideas? Because there are none here. So it's just like remake an old film and then hope someone else comes along with new ideas. Anyway. <laughs> Um, the, yeah, yeah when, so, that, when that's already been done, it's like you've yeah. you said oh, open up new ideas. Like, no, there's been like two other trilogy. There's a two trilogies <laughs> and spinoffs. Like what? Yeah, you, yeah. You don't need to remake that. Um, anyway, so this so the story beats they just land exactly as they do with a new hope. You get a droid with information on a sand planet at the start. You get a Darth Vader type enemy hunting down. You get simple peasant befriends the droid you meet Han Solo who's already in hot water it just goes on and on and and what it really doesn't do is is settle down at any point um J.J. Uh, Abrams he's so hyperactive there's there's no quiet between the set pieces whatsoever it's constant moving camera constant even when it's just dialogue scenes they've got to be rushing down a corridor or tripping over each other and and I think what the problem is, is that it really begins the whole premise of this film and actually the the, the modern trilogy is that it's it's basically retreading the same 
territory that the that the original trilogy did. So instead of like the Empire, basically the at the end of Return of the Jedi, the evil Empire was was vanquished. They were gone. Now um, suddenly it's been replaced by something called the First Order, which is identical to the Empire. So and so now instead of rebels, we have something else. They're called something else. I don't know. Anyway, and but. I, I, you know, there could have been something really different here. They could have had some a really fresh idea where perhaps, you know, the the rebels who won in the first place they could be uh, trying to rule the galaxy, and we could see them become blossoming fascists themselves. I don't know. It could have been really intriguing. Nope, nothing of it. Um, and yeah, so you've got uh, the the main main character is someone called Ray. And she's kind of like uh, starstruck. Um, she's starstruck in the presence of Han Solo. She gets all starry-eyed at the mention of Luke. She's a fangirl. She, it's like it's like she's almost like a proxy for us. It's like, oh yeah, you remember them? Remember those characters? Oh, I love them. Yeah, they're great. And oh, and then you got this other character played by John Boyega called Finn, who, at the start, he has been conditioned from a child to uh, be part of the first order army and slaughter civilians. Right. And he just uh, snaps out of it and he's fine. He's really level headed and sweet natured for the rest of the trilogy. He has been conditioned from like as a child to kill people. And it, and suddenly in the midst of battle, he's like, Oh, hang about. Don't, I'm not enjoying this. Donald Gleason is in this. He is unbelievably bad like he's acting you, you are, i i i know you have trouble with donald gleason i, but I don't have i think he's quite limited i think he's all right when he's when it's uh a part that doesn't require him to really go places um like ex machina he was good he was fine um but yeah he's so bad in this i don't know what it's like he's acting in a different movie. It's it's bizarre. And uh, this is it's pure yeah, so the force awakening is pure nostalgia filmmaking. And I can kind of see why they went with that, because it's like fast food. It is something that tastes good immediately as you're watching it. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, there's a callback. Oh yeah, I remember that character and stuff. But then of course you watch it a couple more times, you consume that fast food a couple more times, you realise this is really deeply unsatisfying. This um, it sounds almost like the, the the sort of visual equivalent of well, the cinematic equivalent of observational comedy. Yes, yeah, that's it's that's like, bad. Yeah. That is that's bad. Yeah, pointing out stuff and it's like saying remember that. Yeah, it's like so that you can. It's designed for people to nudge each other in the cinema and go, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm dry heaving, as you say. You must have really struggled with this because you watched them all so close together as well. Yeah, well, uh, and yeah, so you can see you can see how much of a retread it is of A New Hope. And, you know, I'm the same as most people. I really enjoyed The Force Awakens when it came out because, of course, so much time had passed since previous films. It was like, oh, this is exciting. It looks good, really well made, technically speaking. But my God that script it's just so artistically lazy so that is the force awakens well i had a different experience with our kind of traitor um a 2016 spy thriller uh directed by Susanna white 
and based on a John le Carre novel, which I have not read. My only experience with John le Carre was watching the film from 2012 or 8 of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, yeah. That's got to be 2012, isn't it? I thought so. Um, so this does Hugh McGregor as a floppy head um, poetry uh, lecturer in London uh, who has a bit of a fractious relationship with his wife, played by Naomi Harris. And they go uh, on, abroad to Morocco. And during a kind of argument at dinner, Hugh McGregor gets called over by a, a sort of um, a Russian man uh, to, to get you know, go off and go to a party and have a few drinks, have some fun. That Russian man, Rupert, is played by Stellan Skarsgård. And I'm just going to come out and say that that man has not been in a bad film. That man is like Sam Neill. He is a rock of quality. <laughs> yes. um, so he's got this amazing, like, um, this amazing, like, sort of, like, hair that's, like, grey and sort of, like, almost show the length, but, like, quite tight to his head, but wavy. Good, good. Um, and you see his tip. Don't you worry about that. So this is a very different review to the Force Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, yeah, Ewan McGregor goes out and he's almost kind of seduced into Stellan Skarsgård's world a little bit by you know surrounded by beautiful women. There's drugs and everyone's smoking fags, having a good time. But he does kind of think, oh no, I, I really want to see my wife's up to. And you can tell he's like, in love with his wife at heart. As he is leaving this party, he hears a sound in a corridor and he sees a woman being raped, and he like just pulls the guy off and gives him a bit of a kick in uh, and they get sort of dragged apart as he's been driven back to his hotel um uh, stellan stars god says to him do you know who that man was and who mcgregor says no and he says well the tattoo on his neck of a knife means an assassin and the tattoos in his chest uh, mean that he's part of the russian mafia and uh. it, and uh, Ewan McGregor is like, oh, but Stellan Skarsgård says, I believe that even if you knew that, you wouldn't have stopped doing the kind of inherently good thing of stopping what was happening to that woman. And he trusts Ewan McGregor to give a USB stick to take over to British MI6. And he just says, just when you go back, give this USB stick to MI6 and just say that I am the head kind of money launderer for the Russian mafia. I'm worried about my family. I think I'm going to be killed. I just want asylum in Britain. I just want me and my family to be safe. And the film kind of goes, takes off from there and how Ewan McGregor and Naomi Harris get dragged into this kind of against their will, but also with the backbone of just trying to do the right thing. I, mm. I really like this because yeah. I, I really believed that Ewan McGregor, the, the things Ewan McGregor does, they never... He's always just sticking to his own moral code. Like yeah. when you see him and he's in these situations, when he's in like a car with like a load of Russians and they're constantly side glancing at him, he is he is dry swallowing and he is almost trembling with panic. But then when he's in a sequence when like a woman just gets booted in the face, he will just launch into action almost on instinct for just doing yeah. the right thing. And I fully believed him throughout the whole film. I believed him and uh, there's a hint in the film that he has slept with a student. And the film does this thing of never like looking down at the viewer. Um, yeah. It hints it hints that he has had an affair in the past with a student, and they're trying to re repair this fractious marriage. And it hints at a lot of things, but nothing is ever spoon fed. Even the moments when they're kind of on the run from the Russians and in a safe house, it's the perfect moment when a lesser film would say, "Oh, let's just have a load of lazy expedition to fill fifty minutes." But yeah. it doesn't do that. Good. I do believe I do believe there is another cut of this film. 
where it's more action-packed, and I'm glad it doesn't exist because there's a sequence when Stellan Skarsgård gives Uma Gregor a gun when they're in a safe house, and he says, do not use this, just point and shoot. And Ewan McGregor fires the gun once at a key sequence, and it mm. cuts back to the gun, and it's empty, and the, it's, um, the slide is back as if all the bullets have been fired. Mm. Oh. And I thought he fired specifically once. And why would Stellan Skarsgård give him a, his a companion again with one bullet in it? So I got a feeling there's another cut that's a little bit more action-packed, but it's a better film for us not having to see that cut. Mm. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, because mm. sometimes, yeah, especially when it comes to these cerebral thrillers, they can, the action can often be, feel like a distraction more than anything, just pandering to this a, is, the wrong crowd. Yeah. You're right. This is very much a film where the, 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 like I said the other day, when, what was the film I watched? Um, Body of Lies, where it was just the whole, the, the joy of the film comes from completely being on board with um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and feeling uncomfortable and just feeling tense for him. And it, and this is much of the same um, with the, uh, with Ewan McGregor. It also, I can hear you typing. Are you typing in to watch? Um, it's, <laughs> I th- it's also a film that when I was re- just reading about it, I realized that a lot of John le Carre's stuff, because I do do some research, is, is like smoky set in corridors, brown corridors, old men smoking fags and talking to each other. And this is actually a little bit more globetrotty and, and it plays nicely into the plot. So it's almost like a more subdued bond if yeah. he was a university lecturer who taught poetry. That sounds intriguing. Where Where is it available? This is on Netflix. Right. That sounds good. Yeah. When was it made? Is it recent? 2016, based on a 2010 novel. Okay. Um, good, yeah. I might check that out then. Um, some quite keepers in there, isn't there? In your list yeah. this week. Yeah. Um, Not yeah. just Star Wars, my boy. <laughs> I know. Even I can f- I'm feeling weary by Star Wars. Um. <laughs> Next week, I'll talk all about Star Trek. Sorry, Gwen. Oh, that'd be amazing. I'd do that. I'd happily do that. Um, it'd be so biased, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love all the movies, including uh, The Final Frontier. Um, so, Star Wars, though, Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, is by far the best of the new trilogy, in my opinion. Oh, that's okay. It actually has some new ideas and has a really seriously dramatic final third. And it's written and directed by Ryan Johnson of Knives Out, Looper and Brick fame. I was going to say, he has made us... Brick is a very good film. Yes. And of course, yeah, and Knives Out and even Looper. Yeah, to, yeah to they're all point. good films. Yeah, yeah. they're all fine. Um, so this one, uh, Ray, the girl who's got the force going on and uh, she goes girl. to f- fangirl. the fangirl she goes off to find luke skywalker and hopefully she wants to get trained by him basically as a jedi meanwhile the rest of them are off they're going off to face an almighty first order fleet and finn the guy for the john boyega's character and friends they go off to this gambling planet to find a very specific person who can remotely take down the first order defenses and and so in this one the relationship between um ray and kylo ren who's effectively the darth vader character in this one kylo ren played by is his name adam driver i think it's yes. that's name yeah, yeah. yeah it their relationship is is deepened in a very interesting way and there's genuine tension between them um 
long story short, really, this is a bit like Empire Strikes Back insofar as kind of everyone fails in this one. But it's really an interesting film because it's a it's a film about that very thing. It's about living with failure and disappointment. So because, for example, Ray goes to speak with Luke Skywalker, expecting this like hero um, and she just finds him. He's just a really grumpy hermit living on his own on an island and who doesn't give a damn about any of it anymore. Um, and Finn fails and he learns that just being good is not sufficient to succeed. And uh, another character is demoted for his courage. Oscar Isaac's character, he's demoted for his courage rather than praised. And and there's this... and. Um, one of my favorite bits in it is this revelation about Ray's parents because Ray has, she has this, the force is within her basically. Mm. And there's a really great revelation about the fact that she's not, she's basically told she's not from a, um, she's not from a kind of uh, an elite or Royal bloodline or anything. Her parents are just nobodies. They just didn't want her. They weren't interested in her. They wanted rid of her sort of thing. And it's a really, really good, like harsh assessment, but really bluntly delivered. And, and I, what is good about this is this fact is that it, what it does is it takes the force, this magical force, takes it away from that elite bloodline and puts it into the hands of regular people that actually anyone could potentially have access to this to the force and this was something that people had a problem with um uh fans did not like this they also hated the part where the uh some of the characters go to this gambling planet um but again this is something which has got it's got a purpose in the script this is to show this highlights the decadence of a society that's been made wealthy on arms sales it's it's there to show that there are non-military people who are benefiting from an, auth- an authoritarian order, as in the First Order. Um, there's a there's a really really great scene where um, where Luke Skywalker and Kylo Ren uh, they both remember a situation where each blames the other for starting a fight between them, basically. And so each you see each each of their separate recollections of this situation. And it looks like from Luke's perspective, it looks like oh, Kylo started it from Kylo's perspective. It looks like Luke started it. He was the aggressor. And then we see what the reality was. This is, this is all a bit Rashomon now, but we see what the actual reality, hap- how what happened in real life. And that is that they were both wrong. And in fact, they're both to blame for what this conflict that occurred. And it's just it it's indicative of the film's commitment to not providing easy answers or simple solutions, which I really like. And I'd say that each each of the trilogies has its episode that approaches some sort of greatness. Um, but this is the one that I think comes to the closest to real actual brilliance. Um, it seems to be hated in the Star Wars community for betraying the series in some way. Uh, but I just think it takes things in a completely different and very fresh direction and it's beautifully made as well so it's easily the best of the new trilogy you you saying that this is the force awakens you say this is last jedi sorry so this last was jedi. Star Wars episode eight last jedi the last force jedi, awakens so I... was a remake <laughs> uh-huh. um i just remember you, you 
not remember when you said then about um, a lot of fans, which I can't imagine having trouble with something, uh, with the the gambling planet. I, I, can, yeah. I can understand how they say anyone can have the force because I can imagine someone saying, well, actually, in this book released in 1992, yeah. uh, the, the force for fuck's sake, and actually says on page 100, yeah. But with like them going to a planet, what's the problem there? Well, I think what the problem is is that it seems to be a, a, a pointless diversion, but or a pointless digression, I should say. But basically, they're going there for a very good reason. It's in order to uh, to obviously meet Benicio del Toro, who who else, um, and get this and basically hack into the first order's computer systems. And he's the only person who knows how to do it. So they have to go to this planet to pick him up. The point is that they fail. And I think that's what renders it a pointless excursion because, of course, they went there for a purpose and they don't really achieve that purpose. But it that is that is the theme of the film is disappointment, this constant disappointment. Um, for example, you know, Ray finding out that her parents weren't, in fact, um, these uh, like very lauded elite um, royal people. Um, they were just regular joes who didn't particularly want her so left her behind and and it's heartbreaking for her but it's every character has one of these situations where it's like ah you know i i'm i've been disappointed in some way i failed in some way and it's about learning to live with that i think it's i think it's a good it's an interesting theme to um to kind of frame the film around okay so the trouble is, of course, is that it's a film which is sandwiched between these two other films. So it's not really one you can just dip into as <laughs> as the the very good um, instalment. So, yeah, tricky one, that. Can I quickly get uh, two films out of the way in literally 30 seconds? Just because I understand where we're running. Okay. Peppermint, 2018. Um starring Jennifer Garner is The Punisher with a Woman and Jonah Hex uh, the 2010 film is well meaning and I'm sure there's a cut out there that is interesting but it is so dark that I turned it off after an hour. Um, I thought there was a problem with my TV which is 10 years old in the bedroom and no the film is so dark that I couldn't see what was happening in some scenes so I don't... I just yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to watch. Maybe one day when I, you know, I watch it, but it's dark. It's so dark. You can't. As it ramped up to the final 30, 40 minutes, it's only actually no, the final twenty minutes or whatever. This is only eighty-one minutes long. Um, I I couldn't see what was happening, so I, I just had to turn it off. So it's a failure. Anyway, so that leaves me with my last film. <laughs> the uh, the Petman is very much just the Punisher with a woman. Um, right. It's fine, but it, yeah. Um, anyway, I know we're out of time, so I'll pause to it. Haunter is my last film to talk about today, and that uh, stars Abigail Breslin as a... We, it's not a spoiler. She's dead. She She's living the same day over again, and uh, okay. in the most unconvincing way, and, and, and she keeps hearing these distant voices, and she finds out that she is being held captive by a mysterious entity, played by Stephen McHattie, who you will remember, Rupert, from the Elijah Wood produced film come to daddy which was really good uh he's got a great voice good um and she's kind of stuck in a in a loop with her family over and over again and is sort of trying to break out of it 
like an happy death day yes i will before i go into the plot of it i'm going to tell you that it was directed by vincenzo natali really who yes who did splice which was your film of the week last time Mm. splice i'm just going to say a few things right splice is a film set would you agree mostly in a lab yeah there's many scenes in a lab yeah Cypher, 2002, directed by him, is a film set in a skyscraper, more specifically in a convention. Uh-huh. Cube, Cube, a film I historically like, is a 1997 film set in a square box. In the Tall Grass, which is a crap film he wrote and directed from last year, is set in a field. And Haunter is a 2013 film that he directed but didn't write, set in a house. It's formulaic, Rupert, is what it is. <laughs> So when I watched this, I was like, oh, my God, it's the guy who did. I, obviously, I thought, oh, Splice, Rupert's film of the week last year. Yeah. And we're like a really good sci-fi film for me in 1907. I, I love I love Cube, not the sequels. Yeah. Um, this film is it felt cheap. It's got like a decent cast. You've got, you know, it's directed by Vincenzo Natale. Obviously, you know, it's 2013 fresh off Splice. You, there's some money behind it. Abigail Breslin is an up and comer. You've got Stephen yeah. McHattie in it, who is a, a very solid actor. It it doesn't, the film just completely falls apart by itself. So you're watching it and it's her living the same. There's about 20 minutes in before you realize she's living the same day over and over again. But the way she reacts to things is, is like not how it would happen. For example, she sits down every day and puts like a vinyl record on and plays clarinet along to it. And every time we see this about six or seven times, literally in the first 20 minutes, every time she's about to play the clarinet, she's getting really involved in it. She gets interrupted by mum saying to do the laundry. And I thought, well, if you've lived this day over and over again, you, mm. you, you know that don't look mm. bored because she's interrupting you again. You, you know, she's going to interrupt you again, wouldn't you darling? Uh, so that was irritating. And then there's sequences when she gets on a bike and tries to sort of, cycle out away of the garage and the house this big american house into the fog that surrounds it yours ends up coming back to the garage mm. it's one of the cheapest things i've ever seen it's literally like someone on a treadmill being rotated while someone smokes fags around them so okay um and yeah it's she then goes through this whole thing about every time she touches something in the house that um, she can make contact with another person who has lived in the house and being attacked by Stephen mccatty and other forms but the whole film is so flat and uninteresting and just so tediously filmed that if it, it, it just feels like, you know, I'm just fed up of seeing the same things oh, geez. and I'm fed up of just start the cameras of her waking up shocked and playing clarinet and Steve McCarty isn't in it enough. There's no real threat because he's this kind of off screen threat of these whispered voices coming in. You think this is just, this just seems like a really badly realized version of the afterlife. Mm. Um, and so this is not my film of the week. Still love Steve McCarty. And one thing I forgot to mention about Jingle Jangle is that film is pretty much all set on one set, which what reminded me then as I was talking about Vincenzo yes. Natale, it is crying out to be a touring stage show, Jingle Jangle. And, you know, sometimes those that kind of self-enforced limitation can really make a film come alive as someone like Cube shows you know Absolutely. you've got one setting you've got a simple setup they're not going anywhere else they literally can't go anywhere else so it's like and that creates intrigue but it can also be a recipe for boredom as well as it is here as it is here mm. so that's called haunter 
Yeah, it, really not worth a watch. Mm. Uh, he didn't write it, Vincenzo Natale. I mean, like I said, between between his one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films in the mm. last 20, 24 years, we've really, really liked two of them and really disliked yeah. two of them. So yeah, it, mm. see what he does next. Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> I won't be following his career too closely. Um, <laughs> Uh, so right, we come to the end then. This is Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Um, yeah, it all ends here. This is J.J. Um, Abrams took over again in this one. Uh, this one reintroduces old Palpatine, the guy who Darth Vader killed at the end of Return of the Jedi. So he's resurrected somehow. Okay, uh, Does it explain that at least. Can't remember. Um, Ray goes around the houses until she gets her showdown with Palpatine and her showdown with Kylo Ren. Meanwhile, everyone else is preparing for war and they're trying to rustle up the regular folk around the galaxy because Palpatine's about to launch the biggest fleet ever to crush the centers. Um, it is a massive retcon job of the previous movie. It reverses mm. pretty much all of the interesting ideas that ryan johnson put forward in uh, the last jedi and again abrams uh, all right he's not the writer he's co-writer i think but it's just lifting from the past yet again resurrecting palpatine you got the whole uh, you've got a, another parenthood revelation from empire strikes back they even dig up the death star again somehow luke skywalker obviously mark hamill he rocks up and says, oh, by the way, everything I said in the last film was wrong. I, I didn't mean it. It's like, all right. It's just so lazy. Mark Hamill? Yeah. Is, is he a good actor? I like him. He is, actually. Yeah, he is good. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, again, structurally, it's just a remix of Return of the Jedi. And right down to Rey facing off against the Emperor at the end and trying to get her arch nemesis, Kylo Ren, to turn back from the dark side. The script is just dumb. Uh like the characters just hurtle from one place to another propelled mostly by luck. There's one bit where they're going to find, they're going to find some key, right? So they, they're going to the ship to find a key for some purpose. They end up sinking into some quicksand, falling into a cave. They find a dagger, which they work out is in fact a key. And then, but they don't know how to use it. They go to the planet to use this key and then they realize, oh, it's got a little bit in the handle. It's actually a compass. So it's like, what? What do you? What is this? It's just it sounds like national treasure. It's yeah, it, it, yeah. That's genuinely what it feels like. And uh, by the time, it, by the time the, the end comes along, there there are characters riding horses on the wings of spacecraft, and you're just thinking, well, the, the shark has truly been jumped at this point. They <laughs> They have no idea to do with what to do with John Boyega's character, by the way, by this point. So he is literally, he just goes around the entire film. He's just a sounding board for other people's problems. He'll just say, oh, what's wrong with you? And they're like, oh, this has happened. And he doesn't get to do anything. I mean, in terms of the look. He's, he's got turned these... into Ellen Page. In... <laughs> he's, in terms, yeah, basically. Uh, and it, like the look of it, he's got these. This is these enormous architectural designs and massive scope, but there's no drama in it to put into those designs. You know, you, you've got the ongoing love hate relationship between Ray and Kylo Ren, and 
you know, there could have been a really interesting story here because Kylo Ren's constantly saying to her, look, come and lead with me. We'll try and let's lead the galaxy because we're super powerful. But they could have had an interesting story about them actually trying out this relationship. But no, instead, they just have these moody conversations and about 15 different sword fights. Really tedious. Just random nameless characters pop up all the time and deliver portentous lines wherever they go. Um, There's... There's this woman thrown into the mix who's a possible love interest for John Boyega, but but they can't commit to him desiring her. They can't commit to that love story or anything. Um, they haven't throughout the whole of the this trilogy. They haven't been able to commit to him having any kind of desire for the women around him, even though clearly it's 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 there is a um, a slight hint of it with Ray. And yet they also can't commit to his true desire, which is Oscar Isaac's character. So because that would be too edgy, I suppose, for Disney. Um, So uh, by now, the force users have healing powers. So they're literally bringing people back to life at this point. And um, it's yeah, I I mean, you, you suppose you could blame The Last Jedi for this being a disaster, but it's not the last Jedi's fault because that came up that put forward ideas, which are obviously too out there for the producers. They shit themselves and they decided to roll everything back. And there's about five different, different screenwriters desperately clawing the clawing it back. And it turns into a complete cop out. Um, and, and this is the reason why you need to have that single coherent vision that's what George Lucas brought to the first six movies. And that's how these three movies fail so miserably is because there isn't a coherent vision throughout them. And it turns into a, just a real compromised mess in the end. And it's the worst of them. The final part is the worst of the new trilogy. Well said. No, I, um, it, it just seems... It's a, a cop out ending is always is always sad and and like you say when you've got something as uh, um, like if you look at something like Star Trek not that I've seen the films but I understand that the it's it, the fan hatred towards Star Wars and the films mm. is fierce and even I've kind of encountered it as a total outsider this yeah. absolute fierceness and when. I've been present in conversations where someone has said they like one aspect and people will literally do a derisory snort and turn away because they like a certain film. And you're like, what? So I understand how fierce it is. And I I think that's a part of what alienates me as an outsider. It's like, I know that if I spoke to someone and said, I'm thinking about watching solo, whereas you would have said, Oh, it's not the strongest film. Other people would literally throw boiling hot coffee in my face and set fire to my passport. So, I'm happy to live outside that, but it is so. Where does it go next? This this um, kind of this mm-hmm. kind of damp squib of a final trilogy that's just been released. Well, what is after next? the after the failure of Solo, they put a hiatus on um, the movies, and I think they're probably focusing now on TV series. The Mandalorian, the Mandalorian, the Mandal- yeah, which is okay, but a little bit dull and slow. But apparently okay. the end is really good from what I've heard on Twitter. Yeah, I've heard that it does pick up at the end of the second season. But I, yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, actually, 20 hours in, it's all right. Yeah, yeah it's fine. It's OK. Um, but I, I think they're probably going to focus on that. Um, I guess they can get a bit of a quicker turnaround. And, you know, with cinemas closed for the near future, I, I know that they're developing a new series based on Boba Fett. So 
we'll see what happens there. But yeah, I can imagine that they'll keep going with the Disney Plus TV series, to be honest. And perhaps it's best. I mean, like the reason people didn't watch Solo is because it's it was answering questions that no one ever asked. We weren't interested, didn't want to see that backstory. But there you go. So film of the week then. Yes, it is very much film of the week. And um, I've been, as you were chatting about Star Wars, I've looked at mine, and quite frankly, it's Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone listening, by the way. Hope you and your families are safe. I'm going to choose Jingle Jangle A Christmas Journey because I, uh, it, uh, although although mildly, I went through the emotional spectrum of like joy and wonder and, you know, sadness and and, and, and the songs are decent and I laughed. And I... When it comes to films, it's very rare that I laugh at something that's supposed to be funny, mm. and um, and and this one hit the right notes for me. And it's Christmas, so why not? So, Jingle Jangle, a Christmas journey for me. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, I think you, that which Star is it going to be Star Wars for you, Rupert? Are you going <laughs> yeah. to Star Wars? It's your favorite Star Wars related. I would have to say that Last Jedi is probably the best in terms of overall in terms of the the saga so to speak but i'm going to choose rogue one because it's a very good film and it's a very good standalone film and i think it's the one that can be watched on its own and just enjoyed for its self-contained content i feel like this is going to be one we're gonna we're gonna watch together at some point i can imagine this i think so Um, i think it's yeah it's good fun yep I know we normally end this podcast by obviously today wishing everyone a Merry Christmas and telling each other we love each other. But do you mind if I do you mind if I end it today in a slightly different way? Oh yeah, go on. Marry me, granddad.